Hi everyone, welcome to Office Hours. If you're watching on YouTube, you can always find out more about what we do here at officehours.global on the web. Our first hour every day, a general discussion of production and IT related topic, topics <clears throat> where we answer audience submitted questions. The second hour, typically we take a deeper dive into a topic and today should be fun. Today we're gonna to be discussing how Office Hours will be increasing our support for ASL or American Sign Language, a topic that has increased visibility here by virtue of last Saturday's show and guests. So if you didn't uh, check into last Saturday's show, everybody was talking about it after it happened. And we will have Robert Sababidi in as our special guest today to talk about some of those issues. Right now, it's time for us to dive into our general question and answers. Mitch, what have we got? Thank you, Bill. First up, Adrian Albeck, all the way in Brisbane, um, Australia. And he ind indicates it's the Olympic City in 2031. Uh, at work... We have four Sony FR7s and three Blackmagic Ursa G2 broadcast cameras. We find it a challenge to match white balances. Any guys to best practices, please? We use a very large white card already, but there is a large distance to each unit. And thankfully, Alex is here, and Alex knows a good little bit about this. Alex, dive in. So the there's the good news and the bad news. The good news is there's a way to handle this. The bad news is it's very hard in the structure that you have right now. So um, white balancing cameras in place is usually something that it's, if you really need the cameras to match. And so for a lot of live events, people don't need the cameras to really match. Um, they get away with whatever they, they're doing. But if you really want them to match, um, you need to take them off wherever they are and get them into one place. And so what you're going to do is you're going to match the color. Typically, you're going to match the color temperature of the lights that you have in the space. It's not, not as important because it, 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 what you're going to do is going to, when you match these cameras, uh, you're going to um, get them to... Uh, a space that should work in any color space. So there's a couple different ways to do this. Um, the first thing is usually take the, the cameras you have the least amount of control for, get them to match, and then get the cameras that you have the most control for. In this case, you have the uh, the Sony FR7s have less control than the Blackmagic. You have a lot of control live with the Blackmagic cameras. And so what you want to do is get those Sonys. If Sonys are using the same lenses, and if they're the same setups um, and you reset them, they should be very close to, to each other. It won't be exactly the same. And especially if you use different lenses, you're going to have to adjust this a little bit. Um, but once you get those Sonys to, to look like each other, um, and again, some of the tools that Sony provides is getting better. I think there was just a firmware update, if you haven't seen it, um, that should give you some um, opportunities to do that shading. Uh, th then then you can tie the Black Magics in. Now, the way that, that, that I do it, um, is to, to to really get this working. A, a white card is not something that a lot of us use once we have a DeMont chart. <laughs> so, so if you get a, if you're really looking at a Chroma DeMont, if I have a Chroma DeMont chart, a 27, I think it's a 28R. Um, it's, that means it's got 20, uh, 28 of the little uh, boxes that go around it. And what I do is if you think about the Chroma DeMont chart, um, if you think about it, it's, it's like this. And then what it has is it has it has this little set of boxes that are going around it like this. And what you want to do, what I do, is I take the camera, I get one camera to look exactly the way I want it to look. Um, and then I take another camera and I put it right next to it, pointed at that chart. Um, and I um, do a, a, a rectangular transition so that in my ATEM, it cuts right along here. It's not a very good color. Sorry about that. Um, so it's cutting right along this area here so that I have 
my source camera, the one that I that I really like in the center here, and I have um, my matching camera. Oops, I just I hit the button. That ruined everything, didn't it? <laughs> so anyway, so we'll do this really quick. Yeah, I know exactly. So so anyway, so I let's just do this real quickly here. What I'm doing here is is I'm I want to have my matched the camera that I want my my source camera here, and I want the camera I want to match out here, and this is the line between the two. As long as I can see that line, they're not matching. <laughs> so so if I as I as I change my colors, they're going to match, you know, over time. So I, I, I can shade my cameras to each other until the line between the two disappears um, in the DeMont chart. Um, you can use a lot of other things. I, I, it, the DeMont chart is worth it if you can if you can buy one. Um, it's expensive, but you already have a bunch of expensive cameras. I would think hard about having a DeMont chart. You put this in a controlled environment. You do them all at the same time. Do not. Do them in place. Do not do them outside. Do not do them over a couple of days. You're going to take four hours. You're going to, you want to be in a tent environment that is not going to change at all because you, you, it won't work if you do that. Um, and you're going to get something that is, those cameras will take about, um, that many cameras will take about four to five hours to um, match. And as long as you don't turn the lenses, change the lenses. If you save those settings, they'll match forever. You know, like, like and they'll be, they'll be perfect. Um, but you have to, take the time out and it's about 30 to 45 minutes per camera to get it just just right. Um, now that's the that's the way to do it in the environment. The other way to another way to do this is to um, that we're working on and we've done it with some cameras, but it, it is challenging is to do LUTs for all of them. So when you have multiple cameras, what we've done is do LUTs. So what we do is we shoot that do the same thing. We take those cameras and in every camera we shoot that DeMont chart. Then we take the camera in that we like, we put it into resolve. And we, we build a node structure that matches the next camera on top of it. The camera going on top of it is set to difference so that when we change those nodes, we, we're trying to make that, that image black. And when we make that image black, it does exactly the same thing that I just talked about. The two of them are matching together. And then we save that out as a LUT, and then we, and then we, we apply those LUTs to the, to, the, um, to the cameras. And that has been successful if you have any variance in the brightness um, or how the camera is set up. You really have to be very, very careful. And with all of these, you really need to shoot with scopes because you have to have the gray values be almost identical, if not identical, uh, or you're not going to get the right colors. And so it is to get cameras to really, to get cameras close, you can use a white card, you can use a DeMont chart and kind of get it and rough it out. You can have someone sit there and make sure all the skin tones are the same. But to really get it on, it takes some engineering and and the way i'm showing you to do it is the way you do it so that you can have a look that you want um the other way the demont how the demont chart is designed to work is that you point it at a um you point the the, the a camera at the demont chart and those those little boxes that go around the edge they will form a perfect um connection between everything in the vector scope all the targets in the vector scope they'll perfect little lines and if you go in there and just adjust you don't need to look at you don't need to compare those cameras if you just put the demont chart up and mat and and shade until the until the little dots go through it um you will it will be it will be per, each camera will be perfect and that's the way engineers do it and then it looks perfectly accurate the way i just talked about doing it is because usually we have clients that don't want to be accurate they want it to be warm they want it to be cool they want it to be something else and so we had to find a way that didn't use the vector scope to uh, match those cameras and so that's why we do it the way i just talked about but you can also use it but to get if you really want cameras to match you will need a dumont chart <laughs> like you know like chroma dumont chart um because it's it is a 
uh, it's the I've never seen anybody be able to nail it perfectly without that chart. It's that's why it char- that's why they charge so much for it. Mitchell, Alex, isn't there a way to do that with a difference key on the uh, yeah? On but you still, need, you, you still need cameras. You still need you would we would do it in a yeah. That's what we do in Resolve. We use a difference layer to 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 compare the two together. But we don't do it. There's no difference. There, I mean, so I used to do this live in a live compositor, but that live compositor conduit doesn't exist anymore. So we used to be able to do it all, do the difference that you're talking about. Um, but we don't, there, there's no, to my knowledge, there's no nodal live compositor in existence at the moment. Um, and so I, I have to go back to doing it in post. It's kind of painful. All right. Uh, hopefully that got you as much information as you need. Next question. I've got a question. Now, what would be the most powerful Raspberry Pi I could use for 1080p video playback? I'm using Playout B. Let the let's start with off continue. Oh, oh let's uh, let's start with Courtney Good. Courtney. Uh, the most powerful one would be the four if you can find it. I think they haven't come out with a five. They're they're still having supply line supply line issues, but the most compact would be something like the Melee Stick PC. Uh, which, uh, or the, uh, quieter two, uh, and just run the windows version. Uh, Mickey tends to like these. That is the old, my old friend, the B link S 12, which is a new model of the B link that is out that has, uh, the Alder Lake, which is, uh, the gen 12 chips in them in 100, uh, it comes with 16 gigs of DDR Ram and 500 gigabit gigabits, gigabytes of memory. Uh, and they're only $189. So that might be a choice for you. Uh, if you can't tend to find the raspberry Pi fours in stock anywhere. Mitchell, your question. Then? Yeah, it's, it's funny. We had a little discussion about this, uh, pre-show and, um, I like the play I'll be, I think it's got the best interface for playback. And now that it, you can top and tail, it's uh, the one I'm leaning towards, but I want a bespoke device that I can go to that sits off on the side to itself that I can t- control. And, uh, the, uh, the message I'm getting, uh, is that getting 30 frames per second, 1080p, very tough, more like 15. Mm-hmm. Uh, who was next? It, I think it was, uh, John Preto. Preto. Yeah. John. Here's B-Link. I'm sorry. Here's Playout B running on a Raspberry Pi 400. I like the 400s because the keyboard's there. I don't have to worry about any external keyboard or case or anything. It's been running for two days, and it runs fantastic. And I love running the interface on the iPad. It makes it really, really nice to execute. Nice. Alex? It does look like the um, that the Raspberry Pis are getting less expensive again. Um, we're seeing them in the 70 to 110 range instead of the twice that where it was for a while. Yeah, so so take a look at that. Next question. Joaquin Matus from Imperial Way, California has a question. There was some excitement around the release of the Ari Alexa 35 last year, particularly in live use. Now that it's been over a year since its release, has anybody seen these cameras in use in the wild, or have you used them in your own projects? Mitchell, do you have any experience with these? I uh, talked with my uh, buddy that uh, rents these and has uh, had hands-on experience with them. It's a long, long subject uh, because there's a number of different things that are affecting the release. Everybody's excited about it. Um, it is a likely um, uh, replacement for the LF in terms of what it can do. The the pro- a couple of problems are coming up in their release. It's too early is the is the short answer. Uh, the problems are is that 
Ari is doing such a great job of matching that block, that sensor block in the camera that you can create LUTs on it that will that can work across other RE um, uh, 35s with no problem. It will be spot on. So for live use, that's a great uh, feature to have because one LUT you do for one camera now transfers to the other cameras uh, very quickly. Um, the other problem is the supply chain uh, since uh, it was released last year. Here's an example. Um, over at NFL Films, which is not too far from here, they use the uh, um, Amira cameras. Uh, they're about 10 years old, and they've got about 40 of them sitting on the shelf, and now they want to upgrade to the new uh, uh, RE Alexa 35. So the, me, as soon as that order, and I don't know exactly when, when and if this is going to happen, uh, hits the, uh, uh, the pipeline, that's 40 cameras that have to be built just for one company. Now, a lot of other companies are going to do the same thing. Here's the deal. And from a rental standpoint, uh, and that's, a, I think, a fair use um, explanation, there's going to be more people using multi-cameras to shoot their films and things like that. And the Alexa 35 is spot on for doing that, mainly because of the color science that matches up. But there are a couple of niggling problems that are slowing the process down. So uh, maybe another year from now, uh, one of the big deals, uh, another issue is that the color science is so new and so good, um, there aren't a lot of DAWs out there that can uh, consume that data, that uh, Alexa uh, RAW that's coming out of the camera. I think that uh, a Premiere Pro can do it. Um, I don't believe Final Cut has anything other than the ProRes version of it. Um, it's very complicated. So let's give it a little more time, and then when Roger Deakins decides that's the camera he wants to use, everybody will jump on the bandwagon. Courtney. Well, I'll know a lot more about this next Thursday because next Thursday's SIMTI meeting is the uh, 2023 HBO Camera Assessment Series screening, uh, which will take place here in Hollywood at the Linwood Dunn Theater. And the cameras that they're going to be screening uh, test footage from is, uh, one of them is the uh, Airy 35, uh, the Alexa Mini, the Sony Venice 2, the Red 5 Raptor, Blackmagic Ursa 12K, the Airy Alexa, 30, Airy Alexa 35, and Kodak 5219 film, just for good comparison. So they'll be screening uh, in that large theater uh, special footage that is shot by cinematographers, top cinematographers, to determine, you know, what's the best fit for uh, shooting material for HBO features and television shows. So that'll be interesting. And anyone who wants to attend can attend. It's free if you happen to be in the Hollywood area. I posted the, uh, the link to registration in Discord under Office Hours Chat. So grab your tickets and grab your plane fare, and there you go. Alex. Yeah, I think that this is a it's pretty important camera for Ari, and it's I think they're they're doing um they're doing a pretty good job. A lot of these cameras take a little time to get out of the gate, <laughs> so once they get them up there, getting all the pieces put together um, takes a little time. This was a really strong answer to a lot of folks using the Venice. Um, you know, a lot of us considered Ari to be a better color science than everybody else, but the Venice has been more practical, and I think that this the, the, the Super Thirty Five is a more practical camera. Uh, but we haven't seen a lot of people using it yet because of some of the stuff that Mitch had, had talked about. So, so it, we'll see if it keeps on growing. It's a great camera. I mean, it looks like a great camera. But the, what's good for us as creators is the competition has gotten intense. You know, between, you know, Sony is starting to come up under itself, you know, as far as uh, affordable 
and really high quality cameras. Blackmagic continues to innovate. Um, and so there's, you know, for us, it's never been a better time to, to shoot video. Chris Fenwick. Courtney, curious, do you, uh, you kind of alluded to this, but will they be showing footage like the same footage shot by the four cameras or the five? Camera, I believe they, they do. Were? Yes, usually in those shootouts and uh, those uh, test series, they they determine a, s- a series of complex shooting situations that are problematic for shooting, right, and they shoot these stem, stems. Yeah, they shoot stems with each camera in the same situation, including thirty five millimeter film, and they're all using Zeiss lenses. Of the same set of lenses on all camera on all cool. the cameras. So that, yeah, that's, that's a that's a, a real test as, well. as opposed to just looking at a bunch of uh, you know manufacturer stock footage. Like, oh, that's pretty. I like this camera. It's perfect. Of course, it's good footage. Mitchell, you wanted to run back. Yeah, there's a little bit of time, so we can talk about it. Uh, that color science issue is uh, is a big deal because uh, there's a battle going on, as was just previously said, between Sony and Arri. And um, Sony on paper probably looks better technically, but uh, Airy on uh, on on just sheer color science looks better to my eye. Anyhow, looks more cinematic, more filmic. Um, in fact, the 35 that's coming out also has uh, a texture control on it that allows you to adjust uh, how filmic it's going to look overall. This is like floating above the layer that controls the LUT. So there's. There's a lot of adjustments, a lot of controversies, and a little bit of a different different color science involved. All of these things tend to hold back the uh, the ultimate release or adoption of the, of the camera. And the other thing that was pointed out to my uh, DP friend uh, Tom Schustak is that there are not a lot of good monitors out there to monitor this level of color. He's saying that the uh, most monitors aren't going to be able to show it properly, like a 12-bit uh, 8K or 12K image. Very hard to see with current technology unless, yeah, whatever, Chris, uh, uh, unless you're using a, uh, a laser projector or a, a set of vision pros. So there you go. Interesting questions. Yeah. One, one of the things I thought was really interesting talking some about the color science specifically with, with Ario is that, you know, we think about the knees, you know, so when you think about your curve, you know, you have this curve, but the, you know, how it, how it basically comes out of here and how it goes up, up to here. We oftentimes we call these areas, the knees of how it's curving that and that the fact and the real, you know, it's, it's easy for people to decide what that is overall, but what's really tricky is in every channel that knee is different, you know, like, so that how it's curving off um, in, in red, green, and blue is different for every channel, you know, in that curve to get that feel that's there. It's, it's a really, I mean, it's definitely something we'd love to do is bring a color scientist and most of them won't talk. That's the problem. We try to invite them in and they're like, oh, I can't talk about it. And so, um, because it's really the secret sauce to a lot of these cameras, especially Airy, um, because they, right now, I think they still have the, the best color science out there. It's a fascinating topic right now. Next question. Next one in from Alex Lindsay. He looks familiar. He's over there. Uh, he's from Novato, California, asking, when does presentations over Zoom or when do, doing presentations over Zoom, how many computers do panelists use? My system is getting out of hand. I think we're going to get bigger numbers in this panel than anywhere else on the planet. Alex, start us out. <laughs> so I, I just was curious. It was like yesterday, I was trying to explain to someone, I'm doing this, uh, I was doing this presentation and they said, hey, can you come in and do this live? And I said, like, I can't. I literally can't come and do my presentation for you out of my laptop because there's too many pieces of the system that 
make it much better to see. It's much better for you to watch if I have multiple uh, computers. So what I have is I have, of course, one computer that does this. So the, the my 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 uh, Telestrator is a computer. I've separated out my Zoom computer because if I do my presentation on my, if I do the presentation with Keynote and I set it to go normal Keynote, go full screen, it blocks out all my other windows. And so I can't see anything. Um, so, uh, and if you do in a window, it doesn't show you the speaker view. It's a real problem with Keynote right now. And so if you do it, you don't get this, you don't get to see the next slide or, or any of the notes or anything else if you do it in window. So, so I can't do that. I mean, this is as I build these presentations, you go, oh, I can't do this. And so I add another Mac mini. And I, oh, I can't do this. I add another Mac mini. And so the, um, uh, anyway, so, uh, so what I have is, so I have another one that does my, I have one that does the presentation, one that does the draw over, one that does Zoom. Um, and then one that I demo the software in. So I, so now I can, because I don't want to get out of, out of, I don't want to drop out of the presentation and then go to the software and then come back. I can just hit a button and it goes there and I can draw over top of everything and I can make it all work. <laughs> and yesterday I was thinking, well, there are actually two things that I wanted to show. So now I'm looking at adding a, uh, an iPad and a phone. Um, so that'd be some other devices that are, that are all sitting there that I can cut to each one of these as I need to. And, and, and I'm glad that I have an extreme, but I was like, I don't know if anybody else is doing is, is, is embracing this insanity. So I thought I'd ask the question. Chris Fenwick, dive in. The answer is no. Alex. Okay. It's pretty, okay. it's pretty simple. <laughs> um, it really works well. It's just that, no, it, like it, literally it, to do the presentation. I'm doing this presentation a lot right now, and, and to do this presentation takes me 30 minutes to get the system up, like like to to like get everything where it needs to be and log into all these things. I know it'll get better, but it just like it just takes me a little time little to get it all working. On your watch, that doesn't help it set up. It turns the lights on. Turns the lights on. That's okay, all it does. so that's taking care. So uh, it, you know, it's super interesting, and I will say that three years ago, uh, when you started this little madhouse here. I was the guy who just fired up my computer. I did have two displays. Well, uh, and I literally did everything on the computer and it made perfect sense. And I will say that, and my presentations are edit sessions. I have one that today I have to do with clients from all over the country and they're all going to, you know, hover over my shoulder in Zoom. Uh, and I still do Zoom and the edit on one uh, very uncomfortable to operate computer. I mean, I'm, I'm comfortable with it, but I wouldn't, I wouldn't set up the other computers for our other editors the same way because it's, it's weird. And I've begun to understand a little bit, never will I understand all of it, the, your madness. I've, I've begun to understand some of it about separating stuff out. And it's got me to wondering, should I have a Zoom broadcaster the, the Zoom computer, and then pipe the edit system into it. And I think about that I, a lot. I'm leaning and, towards that because I my whole thing is, is that the M, I, right now my studio is my Zoom computer, and that seems to be a huge waste of power. So my thought is is to to do exactly what you're talking about, is have a, a Mac Mini that is going to always join Zoom. Pretty much it might be the only thing it does, yeah. is just join Zoom and then have all the other stuff, be switching in and out of the other stuff. One of the things that I learned recently that blew my mind, like literally blew my mind, I think it was Felipe who taught it to me, was that in the Mac ecosystem, you know, I, I, I run very high res. Uh, all my dis main displays are 5Ks. And, you know, obviously uh, sharing a 5K display 
through through Zoom is not possible. You're going to have to down res that, and I that's part of the reason why I lean so heavily on OBS because I could take that 5K display, capture it, scale it, push push it out. Um, but I just recently learned, and I say this because I have to assume that other people don't know this as well, that in uh, in the Mac OS, I can if I plug an HDMI device into it, a 10 mini, uh, I can mirror just one of my several displays, because now my, my main system here has three, three displays. I can mirror just one of those displays. And you know the little menu that says, uh, and I'm speaking rhetorically to you, Alex, but uh, the little menu that says scale, scale for, or whatever, I can't remember what it's called now. Yeah. You can scale the mirrored to optimize for the HDMI input right. of the ATEM. And so I'm now leaning on the OS to scale down, which I, I presumably I was doing basically with, with I'm looking over here because that's where mm -hmm. OBS is. Um, but I can take that 5K display. I can still drive my computer at 5K, which is where I like to drive. This is a universal hand gesture for driving a computer. Uh, and share, but I can uh, scale that down and mirror that main display out to the ATEM, yeah. presumably on and the... Uh, which which works better than machine. the Mini. I mean, it works better now. I'm not on the Mini. It works better now on the M series. Uh, when you scaled that in the previous... I felt like on Intel's, it would slow down your main computer to yeah. do a scale from 5K to 1080p. We used to... I mean, we've done it in the past, but we felt like it was... The computer would take a hit because it was doing it. That's a GPU yeah. operation to scale, um, and uh, the, the GPUs were really not very good in the Intel right. series. And so, but keeping that in mind, that opens up possibilities of having a a, a main driver. That's that'd be my editor because again, I'm the editor, not doing big giant presentations like you do, uh, and then have a Zoom machine. And, and I didn't and, think I would be that guy that's sitting at a desk with four computers wrapped around me, but I am now, and it's a little frightening. I what's funny for me is that I I uh, I operate because of the way I because I've always had to do all these presentations and I always have to do video production. I operate everything at 1080p, so I just add more monitors. Like I never if I, if I need to have a bigger if I need to have more real estate, I have another monitor. Like my my studio has four monitors connected to it, and I add I move my pallets somewhere else. So like when I'm in Logic, I've got a couple monitors of pallets. I can't imagine <laughs> there. editing at 1080p. It just it would just be a giant. The the uh, one screen that slide. I edit on is is big. You know, it's got it's it's you know there, and I, and I have a play out to another monitor. So I have you know I just I spread it out along the monitors instead of putting it all into one. It's just a different way of working. It's mostly because I've worked with a lot of. We we just had to work with a lot of monitors that were going to be 1080p, and we you, once you adjust to it, it, you just add more monitors. And by the <laughs> so, way, and by the way, I would like to say your uh, uh, skin tone on your camera today is fantastic. Oh, it looks <laughs> the new you. compliment of the modern I didn't do era. Anything different? I, it's I, not I, nice I, tie. I, yeah. <laughs> That's true. That was the same. Your Zoom skin tone is outstanding model. today. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Why? Thank uh, you, Mitchell. If I get another uh, computer, will my skin tone look better like Alex's? <laughs> Don't even exercise. Um, <laughs> thanks. Uh, I'm using just one Mac 1 M1 Mini. It was the best investment I've ever made. It is a brilliant piece of uh, hardware, and you can build a whole Zoom room around it just like I did.
Courtney? Well, I'm using uh, a Dell, a uh, big Dell tower, uh, which occasionally has to be rebooted because I think Stream Deck has a memory leak. Uh, so I have it unplugged right now. But I have uh, that going to three different screens, which all three of which are fed into the ATEM Mini. And as a backup, I have the old reliable Quieter 3 that's been running continuously for, I don't know, two months, three months. Hasn't been rebooted. And I use this separate... Uh, separate keyboard mouse combo to run the uh, uh, delay quieter three that's on input four. If I need to jump over there for some reason, I, I can, and I have playout stuff available on that on a separate keyboard. The three screens I use, I use a, a browser, which I present stuff on for one, my main screen, which I have all my uh, office hours uh, uh, view, views on. And, um, and the other one I use uh, is on screen two, which is off to the right, uh, which I use for, I can use that for telestration. I don't have it running right now, but it's a third screen I can go to. So I can lose my mouse so easily across those three screens. Alex, you had a follow-up? Uh, yeah. I don't remember what it was. <laughs> That's okay. It's been an interesting discussion. Oh, oh I know what it was. I, I was, uh, I was, I was listening to Courtney. I was like, oh yeah. And then I forgot. I'm the, the the thing that other thing that helps me a lot is that because of all these computers, I use a lot of stream decks. So I, while I don't like to use stream decks in, in the thing, I have different stream decks because what it means, I don't have to switch my, my camera around. So like I have a little six, you know, one of these little sixes and that controls my uh, PowerPoint or not PowerPoint keynote presentation. Um, and then I have another one that controls the colors on my thing. And I have another, you know, so that way I can get to the things that I need to on the different computers without sharing without moving the keyboard around and and i've tended not to use the apple's thing about going from computer to computer because uh even it's been problematic for mr Lindsay, please step away from the console <laughs> you have sickness <laughs> you have one of, of the interesting of things that i fell into is i used to think when i got my atem originally three years ago when we started doing office hours uh was that i needed four cameras and then i remember the day almost i thought well gosh could i take the hdmi out of my ipad and put it in there and it didn't i stopped thinking about uh, switchers as needing cameras and started thinking about them just in terms of needing sources. And so now for me, an iOS device is really no different than a camera in terms had, of it's just I, a feed. I will say that recently I've had a lot of trouble getting my my phones to pair with my switcher. So I try to use the phone to oh, show really? something and it's not working. The newest with the newest update um, on the phone on 16 or whatever, I can't I can't get my phone to my older phones will connect, but my, my new phone will not connect to my hmm. So That'll be interesting. So I wonder what happens when, yeah. yeah. Well, keep fingers crossed, new computer coming in. Courtney, you had a follow-up, and then we'll move on. Yeah, I forgot one computer, which is, I'm surprised Mickey didn't chime in so he could hear himself about my running comms, because I have a, a tablet, uh, HP tablet PC, 8-inch tablet PC running uh, comms, uh, Unity comms in the touch version that I also use. Yeah, I, I think there's just more and more devices that we're going to want to be working with. And I, I th find that fascinating that you would have never thought 15 years ago that I'm going to have multiple computers that are small and very powerful that just do specific functions. But as Alex pointed out, that is now perfectly within reach without being a TV station kind of budget. That's 
That's one of the fundamental changes that is happening. Uh, don't forget, you can put in your questions at any time. So if you have questions in the queue, great. If you don't, uh, you are welcome to add new ones. And as always, please vote the questions up or down. That is the mechanism we use in order to make sure that we get to the things that are the most popular topics here. So your votes do count. Let's go to the next question, Mitch. Yeah, I've got a question that's been occupying my mind quite a bit. I'm still trying to process why I would want a new Mac Pro VS uh, versus a new Mac Studio. Uh, the difference in price is about 4K. I need some advice. Alex is going to help us here. Alex? It just it, it really comes down to do you need PCI cards and do you need um, extra lanes? So the you have the the Pro has eight Thunderbolt lanes. The um, the so that's going to be a, a lot more bandwidth for connecting things, uh, and then you have the PCI cards. Being able to add those PCI cards, um, you know, without having all this extra GAC on the back of it. So um, I don't think that I think most average people will not need it. Um, so I think that you know the studio is going to be fine um, to to make that work. But for instance, I think that there's a possibility of us. Um, if we wanted to have, for instance, a Mac Pro that had play out, you know, on a couple channels, had 16 Zoom ISOs on the way out, maybe we've, you know, if we persuaded Zoom to give us more bandwidth, maybe we have 16 or 32 or 48 outputs <laughs> from our Mac Pro, then 48 outputs would be, um, you know, all six of those cards would be pumping out video, you know, video from Zoom. And you may think that that sounds crazy, but if you're if you're doing an event, a physical event, you're bringing people in and you want to send all of those into Unreal Engine or send them all into something else, um, you may find that's going to be um, a lower CPU hit and network hit than NDI. Um, so you're going to be able to actually, you know, push those out into a traditional pipeline. So so there's, those are some of the options. Also, remember that those PCI cards can be hard drives. So you can put those in as giant memory systems, 32 terabytes of, of very, very fast uh, connectivity inside of the computer. Um, so So you can get a lot of storage into a computer, um, you know, to make that stuff work. I don't think there's a lot of, you know, obviously you're not using GPUs, um, but, you know, in inside the Mac Pro, but they're between storage and the connection between other things, specialty cards, specialty audio cards, Dante cards, you know, all kinds of other things. Those are all things that can be added to the, to the computer for I.O. Um, and you just have to decide whether you need that kind of I.O. If you don't need that, if you can't think about why you would need that, then you probably only need a studio. Mitch Hill. If you go the pro route, I'm thinking that you might want to buy the uh, rack mount version and place it in another room or in a uh, controlled area. Because if you start loading it up with uh, PCI cards uh, for video and they happen to have fans on them, you're going to end up with a uh, hairdryer, you know, blowing next to you. It's going to be a bit of an issue. I would 100% get the rack mountable. If I, if I get a Mac Pro, I'm definitely going to get the rack mount. Um, even if I don't know if I'm going to use it that way, that I'm fine with it sitting somewhere that way. I don't need to display it for people because no one comes over. <laughs> so so I'll, I'll, I'll put it in a rack somewhere. I'll probably not even put it in the same room as, as I am, as, as you said. Courtney, you had a thought? Uh, yeah, and if you, if you like Mexican food, you can grate a lot more cheese with the Pro because it has these special three-way graters. You can yeah. move the cheese oh, yeah. in any direction. And it's swirly. Uh, it's like a little curly, curly. And it, uh, it should be uh, hard like Parmesan, never soft cheese. It just gets really And the really Mac messy. Studio doesn't have great cheese at all. Okay. Yeah, food <laughs> never crossed my mind when I asked this question. <laughs> Let's move on to the next question. Next in from Alex Lindsay in Novato, California. Alex asks, Zoom has announced breakout rooms for webinar. Are any of our panelists planning to use it in upcoming events? John Preto raised his hand first. John? 
Okay, Alex, get ready to cry or scowl, one of the two. In order to have breakout rooms and webinar, you have to have an events license. I think it's events or sessions license, which I think is a slightly different one. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. So the, the it's, it, 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 it's a little bit of a bummer that they're doing that. I am excited about having breakouts in general because uh, it felt like webinar needed breakouts more than meetings needed breakouts in some ways because you're doing the webinar and it's a single, you know, there's not anybody, you know, you don't see everybody. And so then you could break out into a group and then and then come back into it. And I think that that's the, um, you know, that's the real power of that. It also means that prepping speakers is a lot easier internal. Like what we've done in the past is we have the speakers, you know, they have to go into a, a Zoom meeting and then we do all the prep and then we have to send them a link to go into the Zoom webinar because there's no breakout rooms in the webinar. So I do think that for folks that are building, you know, bigger shows, uh, the breakout rooms, both for what we call, <laughs> what we refer to internally as the Emerald City Protocol, which is, you know, the when we send people from one room to another as we get them ready to go for the show, it's like, you know, and we we move them. On the yellow brick road. On the Well, it's it's the Emerald City. When they go to the Emerald City and they, you know, they fluff their hair and then they clean them and everything else. So that's why we started calling it the Emerald City Emerald City Protocol. So so the, well, it gave, what's funny is, is that it gave the, it gave our clients something to, uh, say, are we, are we going to do the Emerald? Like they would, they would sell it to their part, to the partners that were showing up and then they're going to do the Emerald city protocol. And, and, uh, just giving something a name helps, you know, like, oh, we're going to put you in a bunch of breakout rooms. Uh, they, uh, you know, okay. They, they don't really understand, but when you say Emerald city, they, everyone understands it's that little place where you get sent from thing to thing, to thing, to thing, to thing. Um, anyway, so that's the, the so now we can do that for webinar, which is, um, which will be great. Um, we needed it there far more than we needed it in meetings. Not to divert, but boy, it sure seems like Zoom is putting a ton of weight into the professionalization of these kinds of protocols and shows. I mean, I think it's pretty stunning what they're doing. Yeah, I mean, I mean, I do you get the feeling is... that they're really putting a lot of weight into the higher end and, and really make, becoming essentially a broadcast replacement as we watch? Well, I don't think it's just a broadcast replacement. I think that we're, I mean, there's a lot of broadcast tools that we're using, but what, what Zoom's doing is taking advantage of their, of what they're good at. They, their video protocols are much better than everybody else's right now. And so it, it, it gives them a reason, whether it's making it easier to do online events, making it easier to do in-room events where you're bringing people in over Zoom, um, and then making it easier to run these events. The event process is something that Zoom is naturally better at at the moment. Um, and so what they don't have is the same, you know, lock-in that, that Microsoft has with 365. And so they, you know, so they don't have that yet. I mean, you can see them adding that too, but, but where I think they really stand out is, is, is in the event tools. And I think that, you know, that's partially because Zoom already had a bunch of these things that are relatively useful and they have a really good team, the liminal team there that is kind of pushing, pushing a lot of this stuff uh, fast through the pipeline. So I think that that's, that's one of the other advantages that, that you have there, but I don't, I don't think that the other platforms are very competitive in the event space right now. I mean, I think companies use Microsoft and WebEx and other things because that's what their company uses, but I don't think that they, um, I, I just was talking to a company, one of our partners that finally got moved over from another platform to Zoom. <laughs> they, were, they finally made the argument like, well, this one is better, you know, for what we do for the meetings, you know, and I get that you can transfer files on on Microsoft, but it doesn't make the video better. So I think that um, I'm hopefully I, they'll keep on focusing on making that that video, those video protocols and the meeting process to be a lot more smooth. 
Let's go to the next question. Next question is from Douglas Carmichael asking Steinberg just released Spectra Layers 10, which can not only separate multiple sources, but also transcribe speech. Ever had experience with similar tools? Uh, Alex. We haven't had it in, the, in these tools, but you're going to see more and more of this, uh, being able to separate out channels. I mean, even there's iPhone apps now that will take your songs and break them out into the guitar and the bass and the drums and the, and the vocals. And it, they do a remarkably good job, you know, at doing that. You, you'll hear the, the, the vocals with the reverb, with the, everything else. It's, it's, it's amazing. So expect to see a lot more tools in this area as we move forward. Next question. Paul Wallace in Austin, Texas, asking, yesterday's show on AudioKit mentioned the X-Key Air portable Bluetooth synthesizer. Is this the best keyboard to pair with an iPad? Uh, that seemed to be our guest yesterday's opinion. Courtney, what did you hear? Yeah, it seems to be nice with an iPad. It supports iOS, uh, PC, or Mac. And I noticed at Sweetwater, they have two versions available. He showed us the 25-key one, which is on the left there. It's about 229 bucks. They make a 37-key uh, as well. And I note, you note that the, they also they support uh, velocity-sensitive, polyphonic, and aftertouch, which is hard to find sometimes on Bluetooth keyboard. But the thing that it doesn't have is the twiddly knobs. It doesn't have any knobs on it. And if you're using it with a sense, a synth, a performance synth, a lot of performers like to have the knobs so that they can adjust the filters on the fly as they perform. So you might have to have a separate controller for handling that stuff. And he showed one that did have knobs on it, but I don't remember which one it was. Yeah, he's referencing yesterday's or Wednesday's show with Matthew Fetcher. It was really fascinating. Alex? I just can't wait until they do the update and say, now with twid twiddly knobs. <laughs> so like, yeah, <laughs> you got the twiddly knobs or the fiddly knobs? We There's now have twiddly. four twiddly knobs. You can twiddle, you know, uh, yeah. So, I, you know, I think that he was pointing out this this is a great one that's portable that he can throw in his backpack. So I don't know if it's the best one, but it is. It does look, it look it looks like a really solid um, keyboard, of course. I, 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 I haven't put it in, I put it in my wish list in Amazon thinking about it. So I, um, so it, it does look like a nice little compact keyboard. Douglas, Car oh, I'm sorry, next question coming up. Right, it's from Douglas Carmichael. I'm returning to web development after a break and I've got a small project to look at that uses raw PHP and MySQL. What is the most popular and marketable web development framework these days. John Preto. Most of what I hear out there is Node and and then Postgres. Uh, I, people like Postgres better than MySQL. Alex, I will say that one of the things that we've we've learned is that as people start to use um, a, a variety of these tools, when you see things that break when they scale, a lot of them are using all of these little platforms <laughs> that, that help them with their you know that that you know when you're writing really raw code. Um, you, you have the ability, if you're good at it, to write something that handles a lot of scale, the things that, that will not, you know, a lot of these um, kind of coding architectures that, that are abstracting the raw code from the programmer um, reduce the stability at scale, you know. And so, uh, and so when people are writing in a variety of these abstractions, um, we are noticing that, you know, we have things that scale really well, um, you know, McConaughey can, you know, the back end can scale to 150,000 people. <laughs> it doesn't without really on a little computer because it's all written very in a very uh, low end framework rather than a lot of abstractions. Um, and we find that other things that we're partnered with actually break before ours do, even if they're large social networks. <laughs> so so the uh, because they're built on those frameworks that are not as stable. 
Next question. Stefan Fischer from Würzburg, Germany, asking, Sound Devices offers two different L-mount battery adapters for their Mix Pre series. The one holding one battery comes at double the price of 245 euros, as the one holding two at 115 dollars euro, excuse me, 115 euros. Is this just money making, or is there any technical difference? Mitchell, uh, are you starting us off here? Uh, I watched the uh, little presentation that the folks at uh, Sound Devices had, and uh, they say that the reason there's a one and a two is that your bag may not be big enough. Ooh, interesting, Courtney. Yeah, I, I I really gave them a lot of uh, heat when they came out with that L mount uh, bracket adapter because uh, you know here's a regular mix pre the uh, regular the single one just goes around on the on the back here and it just extends the length the elm the one that holds two batteries holds them one above and one below like this so it makes a thing so it won't sit flat anymore you can't put it in a bag because it takes up three times the height of the unit in a bag to use the one that holds two batteries you know as opposed to the one that holds one so i think they're trying to uh <clears throat> blow out the uh two battery holders because they weren't very popular because nobody liked the way they designed them next question from paul wallace in austin texas paul asked Squarespace acquired Google domains that is now behind only GoDaddy, Namecheap, and Two Cows in total number of registered domain names. Which of these would be the cheapest domain name registrar? Mm, least expensive, Alex. I've registered a lot of URLs, probably more than I should, and I keep on. I get a, an alert every couple. Feels like every couple of days of like, hey, something's re, you know something's going to be re-upped, and you look at the URL and you think. Mm, should I keep it? You know, and there's a couple that are that that I had on GoDaddy that I'm trying to get that I moved over, and there's a couple that are sitting on Net Network Associates. Um, you know, that, that from long ago. Um, almost everything now that I have is on Hover. I don't really think of it as a cheap process. Like, what? How do I save money? It's really the uh, quality of experience. Um, so it's the numbers are all pretty close. Um, and Hover is dramatically better, <laughs> like, you know, than everything else, like dramatically. Um, you know, GoDaddy is dramatically worse. Um, I've never seen name, che name cheap. But if you're if you're really geeky, then maybe you can find one that saves you a dollar a year, two dollars a year or something like that. But for the most part, I think that, you know, Hover does most of what I needed to do. And it is um, the big thing is the interface works really well. The customer service is really good. Anything that you need there, you get a lot of support for, um, and I, I value my time. So anytime people are looking for only the cheap thing, I usually feel like they're not valuing the time that they have to spend, you know, fiddling with this. Um, and so um, I find that I will not uh, use anything other than Hover to register domains at this point. And there's a note in here that Hover was is was yeah, founded Hover, by Two Cows. By the Hover is Two Cows. Like it's yeah. the, they just they 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 I think they they realized at some point that Two Cows is not a good name for a, a domain <laughs> name, and so they um, so when he said when when it's Two Cows is really really large, but the the public name is Hover. Plus, somebody could come up with a company called Three Cows, and it would be better. So <laughs> exactly. yeah, I don't want to do that. No. Next question. Oh, Stephen, by the way. Oh, hang on just a second, Mitch. I just wanted to mention here, there is room for a question or two more. So if you haven't gotten a question in, this is a great day to do it. We'll be switching at the top of the hour to our guests. So just a note. Okay, now. I was off and running. Uh, Stefan Fischer from Wurzburg, Germany has a question. Have you seen the last live webinar by Sound Devices? If yes, what do you think about the way they did it? I found it very disappointing because what the person showed from upside down was far too tiny. 
Ooh, I didn't see this. Alex, did you see it? Yeah, I mean, I, I think that I think Sound Devices is making some good progress. I'm glad that they're doing the live streams. I think they probably need to do more of them. And I think that the person that that uh, that did the live stream um, is was solid. Like she definitely knew what she was talking about and really understood the product. So I think that, that was, you know, so they've got a good product. They've got a room. It feels a little dark. <laughs> like, you know, the room feels like a little, it could use a little bit of brightness to the whole, the overall ambient could come up a little bit. It has a very YouTuber-y kind of very, very dark look that I, I think they could probably add a couple lights to. Um, the, a couple of the complaints that I had watching it um, were, number one is that it, it's live, but why? Like, there's not really any, you know, there wasn't, it didn't feel like there was, they asked you for questions ahead of time. Could have just recorded it. And maybe they did and just played it out. I don't know. But they, they didn't need to do a live event. Anytime you do live events without interaction, you're taking the risk of it going wrong with no upside. Like there's no, if you're not interacting like we do here, there's not really any reason to go, again, to go live. So um, so anyway, so I felt like th that there wasn't really a real-time interaction. I do agree with Stefan that the you couldn't see the, the, the screen. You really needed to zoom in so that if you're working with the screen, you had a really close-up. I really wish they had, they would do something where they display that screen on a second monitor, you know, through the USB. Like, I wish they'd build them so that the monitor for that, and primarily for training, you know, like just so you can show people what you're doing uh, to make it work. And so, but uh, that hasn't happened. But but I think that it is a, uh, uh, it's a good it's a good step forward. But I do think also there was a lot of introduction stuff at the beginning that I was like, okay, I don't, I don't, you know, like just get to the, <laughs> just get to the meat of it. Uh, I think that's the challenge with live is you lose. I don't think people realize how many viewers they will lose when something is any kind of long introduction um, more than you know the very short one that we do here usually is a liability um, for a, if you do it over and over and over again, people know you're going to do it and then go on to the next thing. It's less impactful. But if you're doing it for the first time, you can lose a lot of people by the time you get to the meet. Mitchell, your thoughts? Yeah, I agree with Alex. Uh, I think it makes sense that uh, it be done and posted because there wasn't anything compelling that it needed to be live. Uh, the presenter was good. Uh, I like their premise that here you are, you're on your uh, film shoot. Here's what you do next. I kind of like that. It felt authentic. Um, and I took the uh, the YouTube video down on my big screen TV downstairs uh, so that I could watch it. And even that didn't make the uh, the tiny uh, menu screen look bigger. So that was tough because I was like thinking, hmm, okay. Mitchell? I'm sorry, Courtney. That was Mitchell. Uh, well, I missed it entirely because <clears throat> I had heard Alex mention it. And so I started to look for it at the time, and I went to their website. No mention of a live stream anywhere on their website. They didn't promo it. They didn't put a link to it. I couldn't find a link to it. I searched YouTube. I couldn't find any link to Sound Devices live stream or anything. So I missed it entirely. Did they show anything new? No, I was just answering questions about the current oh, okay. mix priest. There you go. Let's move to the next question. And I have a uh, sort of an aside question here, but uh, since it's a a very high-tech venue. What's up with the Disney World Star Wars Hotel? Is it really shutting down just after opening? That's what I have seen in the news. I, I think there's a lot of swirling questions about it. Uh, Disney is obviously a huge conglomerate. And, uh, you know, something like a hotel like that with a ton of technology built in must have been a multi, multi-year process between design and building and everything. And unfortunately, I would imagine that it went on somewhere adjacent to the pandemic and all the rest of the things that really affected a lot of traveling. I don't have any inside information about uh, the financial concerns or whatever, but I have 
have heard that they shut it down essentially immediately after opening it or maybe even just a little bit before that. Mitchell, what have you heard? You'd think that they could use a spreadsheet to figure out what it cost to do this uh, before they did it and then have to shut it down. But uh, apparently they have to charge somewhere in the neighborhood of $7,000 uh, per person to uh, to go to the thing because it's a cosplay. There's like a, a castmates um, doing things like trading lightsabers and, oh, hide this for me. And here comes the big guy. And, of course, it's all fun and games till somebody gets their head chopped off with a lightsaber. <laughs> That's not a good thing. Courtney, your thoughts? Yeah, I think they found out that besides the theming, the staffing of it, like you said, with cast members dressed up in costume, uh, uh, performing basically a lot of interaction with the hotel guests is going to be quite pricey. And by the time they looked at that versus how many guests that they can store there, they were looking at a, a negative income. So, you know, they there's probably going to have a big sale on, uh, you know, uh, uh, housekeeping uh uh, costumes for R2-D2 or C-3PO. You need a princess outfit, though. This is your opportunity. Alex? Yeah, I heard that it not only had to be very expensive, but it wasn't very profitable either. <laughs> like, like, it was very, very hard. So they were charging a lot, and it was actually... So the worst of both things, it's one thing if it's expensive, and they're making a lot of money at it, they'll keep it open. But it was expensive, um, and they uh, the, the word is they weren't making very much money on it because it was really hard to maintain and really hard to keep going and the amount of training and everything else that was required was really hard to lift. Also, uh, guests resisted um, the cosplay thing. Like they just wanted to go in and enjoy it. They didn't want to be somebody, you know? And so I think that that was some, some of the other things that uh, created some headwinds um, in that, in that area. So it just turned out to be a lot harder to do than they wanted. I, I really wish I'd had the money to see it. <laughs> it's still running. Um, but um, yeah, it seems like it'd be really cool, but, but at, at that price, you have to really think hard. Mitchell, another thought? Uh, yeah, I'd love to have it turn into a retirement home. I would be there in a flash. <laughs> the final frontier, right? So anyway. I don't want to be mm. overweight Darth Vader. I just don't want to do that. <laughs> that would frighten me. Although I will say, I, as everybody here on the show knows, I've been a longtime attendee of Comic-Con. That's kind of the Super Bowl of cosplay. And it's just a fascinating environment and world. I'm looking forward to it. I get to go in July again and shoot more photos. And it's one of my favorite things to do because if you can get something where a community comes together who enjoys a specific thing like that, it's just kind of a magical environment. Everywhere you turn, there's something interesting going on and people expressing themselves in the creative fields of costuming and props and all think, of these things. I think so, the, so much fun. The problem I have is that it, I think the idea is more interesting than the actual experience for a lot of people, like for the average person that aren't, that isn't going to Comic-Con. Uh, yeah, I know that the, the Star Trek experience in, in Vegas was in the hotel that I was in. And I, every time I walked past it, when I was going to NAB or something else, I was like, oh, I should go in. That'd be really cool. But I never really, it wasn't enough for to, me, for me to actually go in. It was just like, I kept on thinking it'd be really cool to have glowing blue drinks and, and, uh, and Ferengis and, and I um, and I just never got there, and then they closed it. And there's and I, I feel like I missed missed out. But but I think that that was the problem. That's the problem that all of these have is that you think it'll be really cool, but then you feel like you have to be in just the right moment to go, and you never never get there. Let's get to the next question from Douglas Carmichael asking for setting up a split gaming streaming system. How would you transport video from your gaming PC to your streaming PC? Would SRT be best, or would NDI be better? Alex, take it. My recommendation is uh, HDMI or SDI. You don't want to go through the process of reconverting those frames if you're doing a PC stream. Uh, you want that to be copper coming out the back, in my opinion, um, to, to, to get the highest performance. 
And next question. Juan C. Robles in Mexico City, Mexico has a question. So Apple finally released Vision OS SDK yesterday. Have anybody tried it? Uh, I'm no. Do we have somebody? Yes, John Preto. John, I haven't yet. But but the first thing I saw this morning on Facebook was Adam Tao has Mixaprex Pro running in the in the emulator now, which is pretty cool. So I look forward to using it. Alex, yeah, I I, I would highly recommend if you're an, if you're a developer that you really take a hard look at this and try to play with it. The time to get into this is right now. You know, to figure out what it takes to put it, you know, to, to figure out how it's going to work. This is going to be a big platform. <laughs> it's going to, it's, you know, it's, I, you know, I, I think that Apple doesn't do things like, oh, we're going to see how this works for the next couple of years. This is a decade curve and the, the money is going to go there no matter what. And where the most of the money is made is in the first year or two, where you have lots of partners that are willing to spend whatever to be in the platform. Um, and so uh, you you really want to have your you know the faster you get you you know you understand the platform, the more opportunities there'll be for for programmers that already know it. I mean, if you are if you're not, I don't I wouldn't start programming just to do the vision. You're not going to be able to compete with the folks there. But but the um, if you're already a seasoned programmer and you already understand the Mac OS and and iOS, I think you're going to be in it. You know, I would definitely get my wits about me related to this. It's gonna there's gonna be a lot of a lot of energy around it. Courtney? Yeah, question for John. If Does the emulator output to, uh, you know, an Oculus or some type of stereo vision device, or do they give you a uh, an early version of the vision to try it out on, or do you just have to use a, a PC emulator? I mean, uh, yeah, it's just, running, it's just running on the desktop. So they show you yeah. the environment, and he's got his app running inside the environment, and you can spin stuff around inside the, inside the environment. But you can't see it in 3D. I don't think you I've done a lot of development in this area and we didn't need to see that to start with, like just to get, understand how the windows work and how the things, you know, the basic interactions and so on and so forth. We really didn't need the headsets to do that. Um, so, and I think that it's going to take the months of, you know, what you want to do is do it now and, um, and to make sure that you understand the, um, make sure you understand how, how to get the windows up and how to get the volumes in and how to interact with the spaces and how to do all those other things. Um, I think that those are things that you can do before you have the headset. And uh, let's see, we have time for one more question, I think, before we get to our special guest. So, oh, uh, Courtney had a thought. Courtney? Oh, he already did. Oh, oh, you already did. Okay, then next question. From Stefan Fischer in Wurzburg, Germany. I heard that at least one of the panel members does a color calibration on his Blackmagic 6K every day. Why does that make sense? I don't know about color calibration. I, I have a preset that I load when I boot my Blackmagic because it comes back in its default. So I have to load that every day. That's not a full color calibration, but it certainly resets to my normal daily color profile. Alex? Yeah, uh, Nigel does. I, he's, he's talked about it in the past. And, and I think that one of the things that is useful over there is you get good at it. <laughs> it's, it's, you get to practice it a lot and you understand how the, compu- how the camera works. And so I think that I think it's a great, it's a great practice. Nice. And uh, who else? No, the other one went away. So it looks like that takes care of it. Do we have more? Yeah, we have time for one more. Let's get one more question in. All right. Wrapping it up with Friedrich Alm from Norbutten, Sweden. What is the best practice if you're forced by your client to use Microsoft Teams for remote guests to use in a live production? Is there a way to get a clean video feed if you are Mac ATEM based? Thanks. 
I've had client ask me that a couple of times. And every time I go over to Teams, I guess I realize, um, you know, I can do it and it functions, but I miss so many of the things we have here every day working in Zoom that it, it feels like I'm uh, moving from a car to a bicycle every time I do it. Alex, your thoughts? Yeah, I believe the Teams does NDI, clean feeds out, out with NDI. And then what you what you can do is then do NDI to HDMI or NDI to uh, SDI to get it back into a piece of copper. Um, so that that is going to be, I think, the best way to get a clean feed that isn't screen scraping. So that takes us to our special guest. And uh, we're going to make the transition. Thank you all for our first hour participation. Uh, today, we're going to be dealing with ASL, uh, American Sign Language. It is one of the special topics that we have been very fascinated with lately. And as everybody uh, who has been here a lot understands, part of the Office Hours mission statement has always been to make sure that we do things, quote, with nobody left behind. And there's probably no area where that's more important than in handling uh, things like American Sign Language. If you were here last Saturday, you saw a huge session on how we are beginning to integrate more and more things like the ability to reach the community that needs ASL and uh, everybody who's revolves around that. And today we're extraordinarily lucky to have Robert Sababadi here with us, who is going to be helping us navigate some of this. Robert, can you hear us okay? Yeah, perfect. And if, if I can just set the scene a little bit, because we talk a lot about American Sign Language here, but I'm based in Europe where we talk about sign language because you've got German Sign Language, Spanish Sign Language, French Sign Language, and all the other sign languages around. And I know ASL is like a very powerful theme, but let's just keep in mind that there are other sign languages. Superb beginning point. This is all about inclusivity and making sure that we, that at the maximum number of people who can watch these shows, and let's face it, uh, anybody consuming the content we're doing, we have them all over the planet. So I think your point is extraordinarily well made, and thank you for that. Uh, is there any kind of opening statement that you would like to make about how you approach this topic? Well, um, I, I work specifically in the corporate world. So we're working uh, on corporate video conferencing platforms, which is Zoom, WebEx from Cisco, and MS Teams. And um, in, in spite of um, us talking about it, the knowledge about being able to use the sign, func sign language functionality on these platforms is really very limited. So um, part of this, this whole process, I think, is not only making people aware of the availability of this functionality, but also teaching them how to ask for it. Because uh, if we go to a, an IT guy who's responsible for a, a MS Teams um, implementation in a corporate environment, and ask him for sign language, high probability he'll just say, spotlight the signer. So that and would be the of, default kind of, that's how we solve the problem always. That's how we solve the problem. But then the issues come up when someone shares screen, what happens to the signer? The, he's not visible. So there's, um, I think part of this process is really making people aware that they are available. The platforms don't have a unified method of naming the functions because um, in Zoom, you'll, you see sign language as part of the interpretation functionality. On Microsoft Teams, you see it as part of accessibility together with captions. 
And, and in WebEx, you don't have a sign language functionality. So this, it's it's really sort of depending on what platform you are, you use different vocabulary, you have a different way of talking about it. That's really fascinating to me because one of the things I noted was that it, it, here in the U.S. we have the ADA, the Americans with Disabilities Act, and that originally drove a lot of adoption that I saw into the corporate world because it was a requirement rather than an option. Globally, are, do we see those kinds of things out there? And, and what's the what are the differences in various cultures about um, allowing this technology to be extended and and available to the people in all over the world? But I think that the the that answer the answer to that question is really difficult because it depends on the country and the region. Uh, in the European Union, there are rules that regulate that, so that it's quite an easy function to to. In the states, which is the main, like we heard last week, uh, the majority of sign language uh, interpreters are ASL, hence the default value of ASL as opposed to sign language. Um, but uh, I, I can't see any sort of standard that is globalized in, in that way. It's very, very local. You know, it's interesting for me because I live in uh, San Diego, so we're right next to the border with Mexico. And I was thinking about this when I was doing some research and thinking, boy, you know, there's a lot. There are different diacriticals. There are different things if you're doing the the spelling functions. How 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 much and how little of the typical things changes language for language, and how does that get dealt with? Well, like I said, I'm I'm I don't um, I'm not a signer, so I, I really can't talk about the details of different cultural aspects of them. Um, I can talk a lot about the technical aspects, um, and there are a lot of things that need to be talked about because um, as um, the the world changed with COVID when we all had went online and so did signers and the way they behaved and the way they worked signers had never been ready to get on board to sit at home and sign from their home and, and so they've been forced into a situation where they don't have the mics they don't have the right lighting they don't have the right cameras and they've had to figure this out so it's been a very big struggle for them from a situation where they were put into a literal green box had the sound coming in, had a camera operator, and the rest was done. Yeah, they just had to do their signing. So um, when when I speak a lot with with um, uh, signers before and and during events, it's a lot about the technical support they require to actually provide the right quality of the sign language that that is reasonable to be put onto a screen. And the other aspect, of course, is um, on all of these platforms when you've got users, if you've got something on YouTube and the sign signer is there permanently embedded into the film, it's pretty easy to see him. But on these platforms, you have, the users have to do something to see the signer. So there's an educational process there as well of, for example, do you bring the signer on the screen before the event starts so that he preps everyone on how to use the sign language option? Now, that sounds good, but as we all know, the majority of attendees and meetings and, and events come in after the start. So what do you do with them? How do you inform them on how to choose the functionality? So there's a big area of technical um, 
um, requirements or, or educational field that is is still required, and, and we're not there yet. Well, it's something that we've been really interested in. I know Alex is very, very supportive of this. So, Alex, uh, tell us a little bit about why you're integrating this more and more into the show here. Yeah, I mean, I think that one of the things that we we really looked at here is uh, that, you know, we talked a lot about ASL, and we're going to be talking about ASL and, and all the challenges in the future in on these Saturdays. But we really started doing, you know, we on Saturdays, we have um, our educational hour, uh, or the second hour is education, like it is different than like today is video. Um, and the and what we um, uh what we decided to do the off, oftentimes the summer the teachers take the, the summer off <laughs> so they they don't they they do their their thing and so we thought this was a great opportunity for us to have kind of a a little bit of an incubator that allows us to figure out how do we get this stuff done how do we push the envelope not just with ASL but or 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 sign language in general but also um uh but the but how do we actually um you know play with uh descriptive audio or or captioning, or all these other things that are related to it, and and sign language is one of the things that we took on. And so, what what we wanted to talk about a little bit today, because it's a video day, <laughs> is really talking about some of the technical things that we took on to make this actually work, because it is something that a lot of people don't know. And what we're going to do is keep on talking about this a little bit from time to time to show what we're actually learning, um, and and how we're actually. Um, uh, you know, figuring out this pipeline because I think that there's a lot of opportunities for us. And and so by doing it eight weeks in a row, it allows us to iterate, you know, a lot, you know, in, in a way that we don't usually get to do. Uh, one of the things we have is the existence of a sign. You know, we're going to have signers for each show. Right now we're doing ASL because most of our viewers are in, in America. Um, but we are looking at trying to do multiple sign language streams uh, for the ASL or for the, not the ASL, but for the sign language session that's going to be in, I think, August, late late um, July, early August. We're looking at doing, uh, having British sign language and American sign language and other sign languages. Now, the, what normally happens that I on shows that I've worked on, you see the main program in the center. And then a lot of times they either stack the sign language on different sides or they put it or they'll have the your program and they'll put it, you know, on either side and they'll have two different sign languages like you'd have two different languages. This is really hard to watch, in my opinion. <laughs> like, like it's a very, very painful experience. And every time someone does it, you're just like, oh, we should never do this again. Um, and so what we're working on is how do we actually get, um, how do we have the program? And then we, this is what you're seeing right now. And so what we did for um, for uh, Saturday is we had our, our uh, we had two deaf panelists as well as um, uh, sign language interpreters so the, the interpreter w w was here w was here, and then we had both, um, uh, you know, speaking panelists as well as deaf panelists that were all in the all in this panel here. And the sign language and our our sign language would switch modes, so they would either be interpreting um, us to the deaf audience, or we were they were interpreting our our deaf panelists back to us. And they would they would speak it out for us, which was. And I have to admit that I thought that it was going to be very, one of the reasons I wanted to talk about this is that I thought this was going to be very complex and it actually turned out very smooth. Now, part of that smoothness had to do with Makana because people can actually read all the questions ahead of time. They can raise their hand, they can interact. So we didn't really, until Saturday, I didn't really think of Makana as a accessibility feature <laughs> until until that happened where, where it was, it, it made it a very smooth operation for us to incorporate 
um, all the different, you know, um, uh, possibilities there or many of the different possibilities. So, so the, um, so we had this here, the, what we did, what's really cool about the way that our pipeline is built was that this, this wasn't in the past when we've done this, I've done hundreds of, of, um, interpreter, you know, sign interpreter productions. These interpreters are oftentimes in another meeting and we're just feeding video and audio into them. And then they're, they're doing the sign and they're not really in the same zoom meeting, um, that, that we have there. And that makes the interaction, what, what that makes difficult is when we have, um, a, a deaf panelist, it makes it hard for us to figure out how we're going to make that actually work. And so because we were using zoom ISO, one of the things that was really interesting was that we have the same zoom that has all the windows that are there. This panel is being built with those windows that, that you get to see here on the show, but we're also able to just grab one of the, or grab one or two of the, of the, our, of our um, interpreters and just feed them into this window. Um, so this was done with a set, a second black magic switcher. So basically we ran the whole program on our first black magic switcher. We don't, if we weren't using all the MEs, we could theoretically do this all in one switcher, but we have an, a constellation that was full of, of, uh, full of MEs, uh, um, and this, and so basically the program was routed out into another switcher, which then this is a super source. So this became a super source where we had one large window and then we had another feed, but that's just a zoom ISO going to SDI, going into the, in, in back into another switcher um, that is downstream of the first one. Um, again, with enough MEs or with a simpler show, we could probably do this all in a single four ME switcher, um, maybe even a two ME if you didn't have a lot of things going on, but we do. So, so anyway, so that being able to feed those in separately. Now, where we're going with this, um, just to kind of give people a little bit of an overview here um, as we go forward, is um, that we are thinking about the possibility of taking this and either sending it to the cloud um, or using physical switchers. We think that we could add, you know, have four languages, four sign languages with four different switchers or four instances in the cloud where we're grabbing this, this, um, the interpreters and putting them into a different, we're taking the program feed that we have here and, and feeding it to multiple instances, either again, either in the cloud or in uh, hardware, and then being able to encode that. And so that there are four different outputs um, that have the different languages, because if, as we think about it globally, and Robert can probably give us a sense of what the most popular ones are, but we could be doing, um, you know, American Sign Language, British Sign Language, German Sign Language, Australian Sign Language, you know, these are all different, and look for the ones that that make the most sense um, to, uh, to make this work. And for a large, one of the things we're thinking about is like the typical, one of the more typical ways to do this is to think about the six, the, you know, the UN six, like how do you handle those, those languages or how do you do, you know, those things. And so those are things that we can kind of, um, you know, think about related to that, but we can look at what the most languages of our audience is, and that can be three or six. And once we figure out how to do this in a multiple multiples, we could do this in a lot of, you know, in a lot of different languages. Now there's all kinds of other things we're looking at packing into these shows you know, how do we do audio description? How do we do multiple spoken languages? How do we do multiple caption streams? How do we do, you know, there's a lot of different things that we're thinking about trying to pack into these screens, but we were really excited about, I think one of the reasons we wanted to bring it up this week, and we, we were really excited about how smoothly the very first try went. It may not be that way as we keep on experimenting with this and you may see some glitches. Um, we're only making minor adjustments for the for uh, the event that we're doing on Saturday. We're rounding the edges and making the frame look a little nicer, but we're not doing a lot of heavy lifting yet. 
but we are thinking about you know where we take this from a video production perspective um you know as we go down because this is video day <laughs> so we're talking you know you'll see us talk more about the asl stuff on the weekends um but the uh but for video day we're really talking about how we're putting you know these together um and uh, and making them making them actually work so that's what we're that's what we're kind of approaching right now uh mitchell you had some thoughts yeah, just a real quick, uh, it was a real experience I read for the show, and uh, seeing Kama and Aaron, our signers on there, technically, from the way it was presented, great. Um, their uh, ability to do what they do so well was flawless, I mean, to me, looking at those things. So the combination of the two really reflected well on what we do as a, I guess you could say, customer experience or an experience for anybody uh, watching the program or listening to it. Um the uh, the signers, uh, I, 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 I just wanted to say something. They had an empathy uh, that was interesting, and it came through. I, I don't know if it was just how we presented it or it was just that they do it so often, but the empathy made me feel uh, a little bit different about the whole process. Robert, do you want to respond to that? Yeah, if, if I can. I, I know we're meant to be focusing on, on, on video, but... One of the things you need to be careful when you're doing multiple languages in sign language is the fact that the signers are signing in the language that they are listening to. So if you have someone who is speaking English and then you have a signer who has to sign to a Spanish audience, you need to get the English into Spanish and then sign the Spanish version. So there's a there's a hop there that needs to be yeah. taken into consideration. And that's why when you get multiple languages, it actually becomes quite complicated because you have a, a sort of a matrix that you need to fill in of, from different... We, we find the same thing with captioning is the same same issue where mm -hmm. you need to... You, you know, they can only do one thing at... Well, they can't do translation and caption at the same time. So we need to make those, make those shifts. Yeah. And I had a big uh, wow moment when I was reading something in prep for this and that the acting ability of a signer to be able to indicate a question or something like that is also part and parcel. Am I correct about that? So it's not just the, the symbols being given, but it's everything that interpreter is doing. It's the symbols, it's the movement, it's the actions towards themselves, to the next person, to the person they're talking about. It's, it's a complete... It's a. It has three to four layers on it um, because you've got the movement of the hands, you've got the movement of the mouth, you've got the expression of the face, and then you've got the the, the direction that the hands are moving. There's a lot to it. Uh, um, That's why we're so excited to be able to explore this. This is very cool. Courtney, you had a you had a thought. Yeah, I was going to ask that question. You you just kind of touched on if you're if you're doing an international uh, like a, like a UN type situation where you have multiple language speakers, uh, do you have to translate? Do you figure out to translate into what language and sign in that language, or do you sign in a different language if you're translating to French, for example, from German? Well, the way it works is in interpretation, we have a language which we call the floor language. That's the language that is being spoken. For example, the floor language here is English. So everyone is speaking English at the moment. But if we had a, an Italian here as well, and he was speaking Italian, then the floor is the universal language. It could be English, could be Italian in that case. So to answer your question, um, the two options, the, there's a system used called a relay language, which means you go through another language. In other words, the Italian interpreter would interpret, sorry, the, 
the you'd have to have an English Italian interpreter, simultaneous interpreter, and then the signer would be signing the the Italian interpreter, literally. So that hop is called a relay. You do also have what are called pure booths. Pure booths is where you have the interpreter who is inter- who is who is capable of interpreting into the second language and then signing. Extremely rare, extremely yeah. skillful, um, but there are pure, there are interpreters who are capable of doing that. But the majority is is by relay. And multilingual, multilingual signers, I guess, <laughs> it wouldn't be lingual, but multilingual signers, do they, uh, do they sign with an accent? Can you tell by the signs what what uh, language they are signing in uh, and is it obvious the person who's uh 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 deaf when they're seeing a sign language that is not their main language uh how can they tell they're signing in a different language or do you have to indicate somewhere on the screen if it's visual uh what language they're signing in you know, it, it's usually indicated what language is being used. Um, in, in, for example, in Zoom, you'd actually choose the signer that you want to listen to. So we could set up three or four different signers, interpreters, and then you'd go into the interpretation option and choose the language you want to listen to. And that, that's how Zoom has resolved what Alex called the cluster of small interpreters around the, the, the main feed, which becomes very cumbersome to, to, to watch or to, to listen to, literally. Um, but in a live situation, if you're at an event, let's say, do you have to have a little sign on you that says German? It uh, usually have a sign. Sign yeah. language. Yeah. I see. Okay. Usually have a sign, and sometimes you have screens that are set up. But they're different scenarios. We have quite a few questions coming in, so let's dive into the first one, Mitch. From Laura Thompson in Belmont, Texas, Laura asks, Alex, can you talk about the importance from a video standpoint of what we're doing with ASL? Yeah, I mean, I think that the I think that the issue is is that it, it we're trying to figure out the best way to get this done. You know, so I think that that's the um, the the real challenge there is that most of the time when we get ASL or or BSL or any other sign language, we only have that show to work on it. And so we're doing prep and a lot of times it, it's considered an extra hourly and it's really, you know, you get these tiny little windows to work in. And um, and so we don't get enough time to, to innovate. And so one of the things we're really excited about over the next seven to eight weeks is we get to do something every week. And Robert does this a lot, so I'm sure it's less, less for him, but for us, it's really exciting to to um, have something where we're going to have something to work with every single week. And every week we're going to kind of make a couple little tweaks and a couple little tweaks. And then, and then we're going to keep on delivering back to everyone here watching uh, what that is. And we keep talking about ASL, but as Robert pointed out at the beginning of this, sign language is universal. It goes across, not universal, but it's distributed all around the world. And I, that's one of the most fascinating aspects of this to me. Let's go on to the next question. Next one from Jonas Dattel from Stuttgart, Germany. Are there any requirements for ASL in the USA? And um, I understand. Go, go ahead. Alice. There aren't. Sorry, I'm a little. I was, uh, yeah, I didn't get my hand up. So the um, uh, there aren't any requirements for ASL in the United States. Uh, there are a lot of requirements for captioning, and maybe Robert can outline a little bit for us the difference between you know caption for the deaf community, the difference between captioning and and ASL because I know that ASL is generally preferred um, but uh, but captioning is usually kind of the what we'd call a minimal viable product <laughs> that, that people can put out 
Um, what's the what? How Robert? How do you how do you view that difference? Well, I think the two aspects to it. Um, one is the um, captions never get the emotions across. So when you have a pure text there, it is the interpretation of the person who's reading it to interpret the way or what the message was in the layer of emotion. And uh, so if, if someone says, ha, 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 and you've got a caption that says, ha, 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 you don't really know if he's falling over backwards from laughter or he's just chuckling. It's, it's very difficult to get that layer of intensity of emotion across. Right. Um, with with um, um, sign language, you saw it yourselves. The signer, a good signer, can, can really give you a feeling of what the, the person is trying to message across. So, so that's one layer of it. The other thing that um, I find very often is, is, a, is it's a budgetary restriction. So if we're doing a, a, a large event, and I think Switzerland is a really good example, because in Switzerland, you have the Swiss language, you have German, you have French, and you have Italian. Now, the Italians are the minority ethnic group in Switzerland. And so when it comes to budget for events that have to have interpretation or sign language, you usually find that the Swiss language is being signed, the French is probably signed, and the German and the Italian are having have captions. And it's just a budgetary issue that, 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 that sort of falls into place or is a requirement or is a restriction um, from, the, from the organizer. I think we're ready for the next question, and I apologize. I have a leaf blower going on outside. Alex, can you kind of grab things for a minute? <laughs> yes. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so the next, uh, go, let's, go, let's go ahead and jump to the next question. Uh, from Douglas Carmichael, how did you handle the rerouting required? Was it just reprogramming the video hub or physically moving cables around? In, in this case, we added another switcher, so there was some physical movement of the cables uh, that were required to get to get this out. I do believe we took a couple out. Um, uh, I'm... I'm I have to look at the. I have to go back and look at the wiring diagram, but I believe we might have pulled some cables out of the constellation that were already there that were that were passing through it. Um, so um, this was still part of the the current system. One of the things that we are looking at is the potential of a separate Mac Mini. Uh, it's like if we want to do four languages, one of the things that we're thinking about is a separate Mac Mini with a quad card that'll let us do eight outs. Eight outs is four languages because we have to swap the um, every twenty to thirty minutes. We need to swap the interpreters so that they're fresh um it's just a very it's a mentally taxing thing to do and so we we are swapping back and forth so you have two of them for each one so if you have eight outputs and you want to do this seamlessly you you would have um uh, that, that would be for four languages um as we as we work on this this idea and so um one of the that, again we're looking at is a um the potential of the four um uh, you know, four pairs that come out of a Mac Mini that may not go through the rest of the system, just goes to where they need to be for ASL. The other thing that we're also talking about is the potential of like, hey, if we want to stream to, let's say, TikTok or stream to something else, could we theoretically do an over-under where we have the person talking on the top and the ASL interpreter or, or sign language interpreter in general uh, below them, you know, interpreting? And um, so we think that there's a lot of different formats that we can do. And that's one of the things that's nice about you can do things with less outputs, like kind of routing things or trying to figure things out. But if we feed all that video into the pipeline, there's a real opportunity for us to, again, innovate. You know, we've got a lot of data flowing around and we're able to kind of like think about the best ways to do these things. And that's what we're trying to do first. Again, uh, we do think that there's a, a version of this that could be a really great service in the cloud. 
um, you know, for events where, you know, you know, a lot of this becomes fairly seamless. Um, so, you know, but right now it's in some cases easier for us to do with, with, uh, pipes, <laughs> you know, so, so, uh, or to think about it or to add, add the things that we want to add to it in the future. Uh, go ahead, Robert. Sorry. Yeah, if I can just add to that, um, we we did an, an event once within a corporate environment where they wanted the different signers to be available in the internet on one web page, and what they literally did is put the main event up, put a link at the bottom to change your language. They just did flags and the link, and the link would just refresh the page with the different signers. Now that's that's within a corporate type um, environment where you can make these changes but that's also a possibility to look at yep yeah we've done we've done ones with youtube pages where we rent you know youtube used to have um they used to have a multi-camera uh setting that they took out um that had up to six um different multi-camera but no one ever used it for multi multi-angle all of us used it for languages <laughs> because there were six of them and we would just pipe the un6 into there into into, into and, and in that case you had the six ingests would come in separately. And when you were running the live event, they would actually run as one YouTube event with little, and again, we'd put little flags up exactly the way Robert's talking about it in YouTube. When the, as soon as the event finished, those would become their own VODs. You know, they'd separate out and they wouldn't be the same ones. Um, now what we're, um, what we have done in the past is, is again, to stream to YouTube. And then we have the window and it embeds like we see with Makana right now. And then you see these little tabs across the top that that go along here and you just press it and it's just gonna change which, as, as Robert said, it's gonna change which ones you're you're watching. Um, and so we're gonna be experimenting with some of those kind of um, processes um, as we as we move forward. We're, we're kind of gonna keep playing with what is the best way to deliver this, both in video as well as in support. Yeah, go ahead, Alex, Robert. if I can just come back, I'm I'm experimenting with Vimeo Interactive at the moment because that's also an option where mm -hmm. you can put on an interactive layer on top of a, a video, mm -hmm. which allow you to pull up something. And I, I don't quite know how we can embed a, a separate video as a picture-in-picture -picture into that, but uh, it's something that I'm working with at the moment, and it's a, a direction to look at. Yeah, we want what. What we found so far is that changing, uh, layering video over another video in a live stream has been very difficult to do stably. You know, you what happens is you suddenly, uh, what platforms handle it, what how the how this all you know you know what where you can go with it. Does it work in VOD? Does it work on mobile? Does it work on? And so that's the place that we've because we've um, you know for years we've talked about being able to layer all the stuff on top of each other. But you, but it, what it does is it it very much narrows the pipe, you know, um, and and makes it very very difficult for um, uh, you know, for us to to put together. So that's the challenge that we have there. Next question from Jonas Dottel in Stuttgart, Germany. Will office hours produce two versions, one with and one without ASL, for the following Saturday? I find it harder to listen to the answers often while also having ASL on the screen. Yeah, we're looking at it. I think right now for this, you know, we're going to slowly increase the complexity of the process. We have seen a lot of folks um, have those, you know, like Apple does their keynotes and they there's one version that has ASL and one version without that. And so we are, um, you know, we are looking at the possibility of 
uh, having two feeds, I have to figure out how we display that and so on and so forth. But I think that, um, you know, going back and forth right now, we're just excited that it's, you know, that it's working and that we, you know, we have it there. And so because it's an accessibility Saturdays, um, we think that it's fine to have it up there, but we are looking at the possibility of producing two feeds. And then again, as I said, with more sign languages, even more feeds than just the two. So, so stay tuned for as we, as we kind of work through that process. Next question. Jeff Widgren from Overland Park, Kansas. Um, I favor two separate streams. First is full screen, main program only. Second is for ASL viewers, which is a full screen signer and a smaller picture in picture of the program. I feel that this doesn't minimize the importance of either audience. Is this recommended? You know, I think that with lack of what what Robert was talking about, you know, where we where we have something where you can move the window around. I mean, the perfect example is being able to have a window that you could put wherever you want it and have the ASL, you know, there. Um, I think that there's a another option that we could even look at where we have two streams that are just going out. Like we, if you think about the different options here, we could have a full screen. We can have the sign language screen, which is the picture in picture. And we could have another full screen stream of the signer because we have that, that data coming in. With that, if someone wanted to, they could open up, this might be a good experiment for as early as this Saturday, but probably not, not this Saturday, probably next Saturday. Um, where if you wanted to and you had the bandwidth, you could open up the full screen of, the, of our show and another window that is the sign that is, the question is, will it stay in sync enough to make that actually work? Uh, and usually it, 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 it won't be as close or it could be. What happens typically is, is that one feed gets off from the other feed by about um, a, uh, um, by one segment. These, you know, the way HLS works is delivered in segments. And those are usually, I think in YouTube, those are two second segments. So it could be two seconds off, um, you know, if we, if we did that, but that's something for us to, that's some, that's another idea that we could be um, testing there so that even folks that want to, I mean, because in that case, we could embed those two videos into a web page. So we're, we're doing in a web page, but letting you spin it out into something full frame um, for both of those. Be, that'd be an interesting experiment as well might solve both of those problems in some ways. I think you'd always wanna have the picture and picture version of it because you may, um, uh, you, you may wanna have the picture picture version because some people, you know, again, won't be able to split those windows out. And if you're on an Apple TV or if you're on something else, you wouldn't be able to do that. So I think that it'd be worth continuing to have the ASL or sign language version, then a full frame and a full frame. I think that that wouldn't be that hard for us to do. So we'll, we'll take a look at that. Next question. Douglas Carmichael here with a question. What comms requirements are required for the signers? Do you put them on their own channel or do you put them on the general production channel? I'm not sure we put them on comms this time. So uh, it is something that's interesting for us to think about as, as whether we can, you know, put the, we, we definitely can, we have in the past. So when we have, when we've had sign language interpreters in other shows that we've, that we've done, um, we have uh, definitely put them on their own comm system so we can talk to them. It really helps, especially with the transitions. Um, the, uh, there was some, oh, okay, Laura threw, threw in, we, there were some limitations in their system. So part of this is also how to work with the sign language, you know, the interpreters, you know, they're used to a specific way and ours tends to be a little bit more technical than, and so we're asking them to do things that they haven't done before as well. So we're working with them on figuring out how do we give them what they need um, to be to be more successful. So we're trying to tune all of those things up. Um, we're also going to be looking at like maybe experimenting with mics because now that we have 
some of our interpreters speaking as well as signing in the past, we never thought about their audio at all. <laughs> we just, because we never heard them talk. Uh, and so with this two-way communication that we're doing, uh, we have to start thinking about their audio and and how that sounds and so on and so forth. But I, um, uh, yeah, so so I think that we're gonna keep on experimenting with with where we can go there. Next question. Bob Gibson in Spokane Valley, Washington. Is it better to put the ASL person in boxes or to chroma key the ASL over the main program? Uh, I'm a big fan of just just putting them in boxes. Uh, the chroma key adds a lot of technical um, requirements on their end. If you if we try to key through the Zoom, so if we're trying to key from the server side, it means that we're taking a highly compressed image and keying it. The edges are not going to be very good. Um, there could be a lot of breakup and the, the requirements on their lighting and everything else become much higher to get a solid um, key out of it. And I just don't think, I think unless you do it really well, I think most, and again, I come from compositing. So unless you're going to knock out that key and have it be a great key that is imperceptible, I wouldn't do it. Like I won't use a key that's a bad key. Like, you know, like, an, an, especially for a live show. So, um, so I think that it'd be very hard to key them well. Uh, and I also think it's a little bit distracting. I think I, I like, you know, we have done ones where uh, the one, the one that I like the most, I will admit, when we have a good green screen key is we built the circle here and we had them chroma keyed so that their head comes out just a little bit out over. So we kind of protected the area that they're signing in so that it's over top of a gray but they poked out a little bit and it gave it a little bit of this kind of 3D, they're in a, they're in like a little thing, you know, that, that was there. And I found that to be quite entertaining. It was for a pretty high end event. <laughs> so I found it to be really cool looking um, to have them there that, that way. But um, I don't know if it was more of just fun for us to do than, than really useful for the folks that are watching. Uh, go ahead, Robert. Yeah. I think the other thing is the the requirements, and you did touch on this, Alex, but the requirements on on the interpreters themselves. Let's just remember that the the interpreters aren't tech people. Yeah, when you get them, when you start putting them into a situation where they have to have a, a good camera, a, a clean image, a very focused image, uh, lighting that is reflected and diffused off the ceiling, for example, so that it shines down onto their hands, not onto their face, all the time. This becomes really, really difficult for people who are not, um, not, not that they don't have the skills, but this isn't their world. That's not one thing they think about when they're doing their work. Um, and I work with signers, so and I see a lot of them. There are individual signers who have a very good setup because they do TV work, but the majority of signers will have a sort of a home setup that will not allow you to put them, to, to cut them out with a chroma key. And, and when I talk about chroma key, when we've done it, we've never done it with someone online. We managed the entire mm -hmm. thing. This was an in-person, you know, like they, I mean, it was a stream, but we brought them to us and we had a studio built for them, you know, a, sm a small like pop-up studio for them to work inside of. Um, but it was, it, we've never done it. We don't do anything hard when they're there. Now we have, when we work with, we had a two month stretch where we probably did 100 to 150 of these shows. And in those cases, we started taking the signs that we, the signers that we uh, used often and we sent them kits. <laughs> like, here's a camera, mm -hmm. here's a background. Like, we need you to look this way for our show. And so, by dedicating our time to it, then we tech, and we just let them keep it. I mean, it was compared to all the other costs of putting everything together, it was not, it was a small number. So, it was let them keep it. Now, I will say that for sign, uh, interpreters that 
do do the extra work to make their their space look really nice and their lighting and everything else, we definitely go back to them. I mean, there's definitely a list on our end of looks good, looks good, looks good. I feel like if I was a sign interpreter, I would spend a lot of money on my on my background and my lighting and and my audio and everything else because I'd get more work. <laughs> you know, like we definitely the the people who the the signing uh, interpreters that look really good, that's, that's, that not, we didn't worry about sound until this weekend, but, but look really good, that are very uh, dependable, which is generally all of them. I mean, they, that, that's not really a thing, but how they look on screen. And I mean, you know, the lighting, the background, when we know that they're gonna come in with a clean signal, um, with a good webcam, with a you know, clean signal there, uh, we definitely, they are the first people we call and we go down the list. And it's generally the list that we make in the sign is a what feedback do we get from our the the deaf community watching it? Do they say, oh, this isn't a very good sign, or or the, you know, like so? If we're and then number two is how do they how do, how clean do they look on our show? Um, and so I think that it's a those are the two big things for, for that we look at when we're when we're doing those things. Next question, and it's from Gordon Lake in Los Angeles, California. Gordon asks, how do small production companies wrap their minds around the cost of implementing signing into their shows? What's the minimum cost of entry? Go ahead, Courtney. I don't know about the, uh, Robert can answer the, the minimum cost of entry, but I know uh, a lot of uh, productions that are, are chair, you know, can have underwriters, can have people donate, uh, you know, have a, have a, you know, the signing is provided by, you know, AmeriCorp or something like that. So you have an underwriter and it can be a charitable uh, uh, donation on behalf of that corporation or just goodwill on behalf of that corporation to provide the uh, interpretation or signings uh, for uh, live events and for, you know, closed cap, uh, not closed captioning, but uh, signed uh, online events. Robert, you had a comment? Yeah. And the thing about the interpreters is that um, interpreters don't have one fixed rate. Um, interpreters uh, charge according to the vertical that they're working in. So depending on your vertical, you have either a more expensive, which is probably IT, legal, um, high-tech stuff. And um, so, so that's one aspect of it. Uh, the other thing is they work in pairs. In, in Europe, we'd be paying, because interpreters charge per block, a four-hour block of work. Um, so one block in the morning, one block in the afternoon. So they'd be charging in the region of five to 600 USD for a block um, per interpreter. So if you're looking for the cost, specific cost, that's the, 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 the budget you need to look at uh, in order to just get the interpreters on. Alex? Yeah, and I do think that this is still, um, the cost does make it something that it, you have to look at the percentage of the cost to the percentage, the, to the cost of the overall event. And, uh, and, and then, you know, so if it's 10% of the cost, it may not make sense. If it's 1% of the cost, it starts to make a lot of sense or 2% of the cost. Um, so, you know, in the overall, when you're talking to clients, a lot of clients, if they know that it's possible, and this is one of the reasons we wanted to do this summer. And one of the reasons we want to continue to do accessibility is we want to make sure people know how it's done. I think the biggest thing that stops us people from using ASL is not the raw cost. I think it's that they don't understand how the pipeline would work. Like, how would we actually do this and how... And where would we find people? And it's it's more for especially for the corporate clients that we work with, and they probably use it a lot more often if they again if they had um, if they just understood the pipeline. So what we're trying to do is make sure that we refine that pipeline, and then also uh, show everybody else how to do it. 
Hey, Robert, as more and more of these opportunities come up, will there be rock star signers? And I say that because I saw a heavy metal show once, and the signer was just amazing, brilliant, and you got the feeling of the performance from her. Uh, are we going to see more of that as this continues to expand out there? Um, it, it already exists amongst the simultaneous and conference interpreters, so it exists in the, amongst the sign language interpreters as well. But like Alex said, if you like someone and he performs well and he gets that message across with all the feeling, the emotion that goes with it, you'll go back to him as your first person of choice. Absolutely. Courtney, had another thought? Yeah, I was just going to ask Robert if, if signers are now feeling competition from AI-generated live captioning and translation or translation and captioning both that can now be done, I think, uh, with AI live uh, translation. I know you don't get the emotion like you were saying in in, a, in captioning, but uh, the availability of Google or, or some other uh, service that is, provides this live captioning service for free, um, it, are they feeling, uh, you know, a little pressure from the signing community? I think I think anyone who is using a free service um, is not considering a sign language interpreter anyway. So it's it's they're, they're two different segments of the of the market. Um, when this is a discussion we're having all the time, and and um, I think that the interpreters that use the tools as an additional tool are the ones that are going to move forward. I mean, when when you go back, um, when I think about my age, when the um, word processors came into place. People used to type in typewriters and it could move on to word processors made progress. People who couldn't move on just stayed behind. And it's exactly the same with, with this change of technology. Interpreters that don't use the tools that will be made available, because there are a lot of things that the interpreters use when they're working. I mean, an interpreter, when he's working, has about three screens in front of him, apart from what he's looking at during the meeting. He's got a whole list of vocabulary that, that, that he's set up for that specific meeting that he's sharing with his partner so that they're using the same words. And I know this isn't video, but he, they have and another screen where they're sharing notes and, and like, um, can, I, can you help me? Or they're show, signing each other just for help. There's a lot going on there. So... If, if a tool there is made available that will make their life and work easy, I'm sure they're going to use it. Absolutely. Alex, you had a follow-up? Yeah, and I think that for from a marketing perspective with some of the larger corporations, uh, adding sign is, is, a, is a marketing decision of we care. Like we care to do the finer, the finer edge of things. And so uh, it's kind of like if you're getting chips or getting a really nice hors d'oeuvres, you know, at a thing, like, are they giving you potato chips or are they giving you something nice? Uh, you know, a, a lot of times when we start to work with the larger corporations, this has definitely become uh, part of their marketing plan of, of showing that they care about inclusion, showing it's an easy way for them to do that compared to other things that they could do. So you'll see cart, which is the captions on a, on a screen. You'll see sign language. And so oftentimes you'll see both, you know, there because the cart usually is um, there to serve the English as a second language. So that's actually the, the primary use for it. Whereas the ASL usually um, in events that we have, um, someone that needs ASL will be given a certain place in the, in the space to sit in so that they, you know, so that they can have a person personally doing it for them right in front of them. Um, and sometimes that's a screen, but a lot of times it's a, it's a, it's a more personal service. Um, and it's definitely um, a, a relatively easy way for a corporation to, um, and, or a politician or other things to show that they, that they care about that community and they're willing to do what it takes to, to give them the right service as opposed to a service. 
Next question. Um, I have a question. If you had the ability to implement anything, uh, what would you add to the signer's setup? Alex, you had a note? Yeah, we think about this a lot. The things that we would do is, the first thing we'd usually do is upgrade the camera. Well, upgrade the background is the first thing. So the the Manfrotto, the one that, we've, that, we, that I've used in the past, the gray seven by six screen is the thing that we generally prefer to put behind most of our, that, that may change based on the show, but that general even gray is something that we really like a lot. Um, the second thing we usually upgrade is their camera. Um, at, we used to send Brios uh, to them. We would now send, we would absolutely send these little, um, these Insta360s because we can reframe, <laughs> you know? And so, uh, you know, uh, so we can have, you know, it's easy, much easier to reframe and move things around and so on and so forth to get it just the way we need it. Um, one thing that's interesting is we did try, of course, we thought, oh, it'd be really good if we put in a high-end SLR style or, you know, Super 35 style camera. Not a good idea because because their hands have to be in focus. <laughs> so so if you go short depth of field, it doesn't actually help. So um so we uh so we the webcams are are really fine in that area. And then large we we really like large lighting sources. So really big lighting sources that just give them a very natural, soft um, you know, uh, color or, or, or lighting um, helps a lot in the readability. Um, if it gets contrasty with a sourcey light. Oftentimes we find that, that the readability is a little less. We also see web cameras when they don't have enough light, web cameras quietly slow down their frame rate or they slow down their shutter speed. So the frame rate's the same, but they'll show So if you have a cheaper webcam with not enough light, that's one of the things we've really had trouble with with some interpreters because their hands get more motion blur. And so, um, so those are things that we, that, we, that we kind of worry about as we, as we look at those things. Robert, your thoughts? Yeah. Um, I agree with Alex 100%, but one of the things that I find that that um, if I could, I would help the interpreters, the sign interpreters, is to put blinds on the in the windows that they're in. I find that the outside light seems to affect the, even if they've got good lighting that is diffused nicely and it's, it's soft, the outside light, change of time of the day, the sun going across, it just messes up everything. Yeah, we've discussed that a lot here. I, I 100%. I think that's universal and absolutely true. Mitchell, you had a thought? Yeah, Kama, one of the signers, had this uh, flexible, you know, unpack it, uh, what do you call them, taco version of the uh, background. And I looked at it and I said, well, we're going to be shooting off the screen because it didn't quite cover the whole background. But in the super source, it was perfect. And it covered her entire hand motion. So uh, I think they're very aware of what they're using in the background, particularly if uh, they're doing a lot of motion with their hands. Let's get to the next question. From Josh Kaufman in Pittsburgh. Go ahead. I'm sorry, I interrupted you, Mitchell, but one of the other things that I noticed, um, I don't know if you noticed, that the signers tend to use headsets with boom microphones, and because of the movements of their hands, they have a tendency to knock their mics off place. Now, um, during when they're signing, that's fine, but when they come back to to vocal um, communications, it's an issue. Um, what I think I would add, and some of the signers that I work with that are really good have shotgun mics that, that they use out of vision, but directed to them, and then they don't get in the way with the, with the movement of their hands. Interesting. Alex, you had a thought on that? Yeah, and one of these we were looking at discussing that specifically uh, for because we hadn't we haven't thought about them talking before, so we never thought about that process. But we were thinking countrymen mics or DPAs that come down to the side that are just much smaller headsets that they're much li less likely to hit with in ear. Like as we start to really clean this up, like we we're probably going to look at one or it looks like we're going to get the same 
um, signers for the, the rest of the summer. And if that ends up being the case, we may send out two test kits to them to like, how far can we push this? <laughs> like, you know, like, where can we go with this? So we may uh, upgrade their system a little bit over the summer to see if we can't um, improve that improve that system. This show is all about refinement over time. It's a yeah. great thing. <laughs> Next question. Josh Kaufman, Pittsburgh, PA, asking, what role might captions play in the future office hours productions? Onboarding guests, translation, dedicated translation feeds? Alex, their thoughts? We'd like to do all of those things. Uh, you know, this, what we're getting to do right now is we're, the, 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 uh, our sign language interpreters are being provided for us so that we can to work on the show over the summer. And so we're, we're very uh, grateful for that. And it's letting us do all this R&D. That's why we're so aggressive about wanting to do the R&D is because we have this opportunity that, we, that would normally cost us a fair amount of money to do. And so we really want to um, take full advantage of that and figure out the best ways to do it over this time. And, that, and that's why we're a little bit of in a rush to kind of figure this all out. Captions are the same. They're not quite the same cost, but they are still something that we'd have to figure out where the budget came from. But I do think there's a budget out there. And so what, one of the things we want to show is that we can do all these things and then see if the, if we can find folks that would support us in doing them on an ongoing basis. I would love to do all of this every day if we could find the budget to to do to do that. And so we're um, so so stay tuned. Next question, Douglas Carmichael asking: Would there be any sort of uh, speech to text we could add to comms to enable deaf crew members to participate? Alex, your thoughts on that? I mean, there's a lot of that right now that's available. Even inside of Zoom, um, you know, there are some, thing, some of those things that are available, but there's a lot of speech-to-text um, tools. I mean, you can literally open up your iPhone and set it there and have it hear the stuff and it'll play it out. Um, I think that we would love to be, we're going to slowly look at ways we can add more of those types of things that we're, I think right now in After Hours, there, you'll see a window now. We were called, uh, Eileen was called us out a couple times for the fact that we didn't have captions in the meeting. Um, and uh, so we took that seriously. And within a couple of days, we had a, uh, a captioning in, in, in after hours. <laughs> we don't use captioning. Um, we don't use the official Zoom captioning because it provides transcripts in after, in after hours and transcripts we, we view as recording. So if Zoom is able to turn off transcripts, we would, we would use it every day, all day. It's the fact that it, it doesn't, we don't know of an option that allows us to do trans, do captions without transcripts. That's the, that's the problem we have with after hours, but we now have a window that does a pretty good job. Yeah. And as computers get faster and faster, I would hope that more automation can be brought to this to enable more and more people to participate as crew members, should they want to. I know latency and things like that, when you're trying to hit cues, may be an issue now, but hopefully in the future, as continue, things continue to evolve, it will be less and less such. Uh, let's get to the next question. From Josh Kaufman in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Josh asks, what might an ASL interpreter uh, that is used to working in on-site events need to keep in mind when performing virtually? Robert, do you want to start us off? Um, I think the two types of um, uh, um, sign language interpreters and sign language interpreters that are used to working on site and they don't have any facilities at home or, or in a studio to do this sort of work. And that's one group of people. Those are the people, the, the, the signers that are usually on TV at conferences. And I find it very difficult to bring someone like that on board very quickly. You'd have to work with them, set them up and show them and allow them to practice. But with signers that are working at home and working um, in, in, a, in a real world environment on site, I think their biggest challenge is actually being able to turn around to the, to the speaker and ask them to repeat something. 
Um, there are situations where you have to turn around and say, what did you say? Did you mean this? And um, you can't do this on online. So there, there are some challenges in this area that, that one needs to accept and say, okay, I need to um, assume that that is what he said <laughs> and move on. Otherwise you get left behind. So would the ideal be that the person doing the signing as a panelist in kind of live space, would that make a difference as opposed to an outside source just but I think that the, it's I think it's on site on site. So the, the the question really here is for the you know what is the um, if you're used to being up until Zoom. I mean up until COVID, almost all ASL you know was was done or all sign language was done in person. Like they were somewhere um, doing it in front of people or in front of a video, and they didn't have to have it. Like all this has happened in the last couple of years. Um, and you know, we talked about it because we did all those, um, all the sign language shows all in one little, um, blip. We talked a lot about, we should build a, a sign language station, you know, like, like here is a pre-built system, you know, for X amount of dollars. And if you just buy it and put it into a room that's big enough to hold it, you'll look good and sound good. And, you know, we didn't say it sound good, but we, which I'm glad we didn't build one until we knew that that it was important. But for us, it would be probably something that looks a lot like moving blankets with big lights, like much like what mine looks like with a gray background and a, and a good thing. But they, the other big thing that we have trouble with is that a lot of our sign language, we had a lot of interpreters that didn't have good internet. And, um, and so that was a problem where they'd break up during the show or disappear for a minute or, you know, those are the kind of things that we worry about a lot is, is that they didn't know, like, for instance, it's bad when you're using Wi-Fi for audio, it is devastating when you're using Wi-Fi for sign language. And so, because it drops a couple frames and you were moving your hands. And so you're like, you know, like, you know, and, and so, uh, so we really had to work with our sign because they didn't know that that was a big issue. Um, and at the level that we were doing the events, it was a big issue. And so we, um, so we had to uh, make sure that we we'd send them Ethernet cables. <laughs> like here's like they they would say, well, the, the router is a long way away, and we we're like, well, here's a hundred foot Ethernet cable. Like you know, like you know, it, at least for our shows, please run it through the house. You know, and so um, because it definitely made a big difference. Courtney had a last thought. Yeah, on on that line, Alex, do would you suggest that uh, people that are coming in? Uh, from their homes that may not have the bandwidth available uh, from their ISP to go to 720p because it would deliver lower bandwidth, but still enough bandwidth to interpret the signs. They don't necessarily need 1080p, but it'd be more important to to see the sign than to have it break up, you know, at 1080p. Yeah, to be honest with you, uh, if someone had bad internet, we probably only used them once. Like it was, you know, it was that we didn't come back to them and try to figure it out. We just went, we just told, we told the service we can't, that person doesn't have enough bandwidth to be on our show. Like that's, you know, like that, because we're working with a service and we're just, we're not working with people indirectly. We would just tell the services of the priorities. And usually we would just tell them this is the bandwidth that they need to have. And if they didn't have that, then we would just move on. And this is the hard part for a lot of the interpreters is that they, they didn't, they were living in places that didn't necessarily have that, but you know, we were trying to do a show. So, so we were, you know, like for us, we just, you know, went back and said, we need to find another one to, to fit in. So that's why it's so important, I think, for people to know, for interpreters to know what is possible, what they need so they can be competitive. But my point was, if they're going to be put in a box in the corner anyway, you may not need the higher resolution since they're yeah. going to be reduced in size anyway. It just was really difficult because it's usually lower frame rate and breakup. And it was usually, rarely is it just internet. <laughs> like, rarely is it just, uh, uh, 
you know, bandwidth or resolution. And it's very hard for our system to like, you know, for someone coming in a lower res affects a lot of other things. And so we tend to not, we just, we're looking for people with fast internet connections and good lighting. A couple more quick ones. Oh, Robert, you wanted to get in on that? Yeah. Um, we just need, also need to keep um, be sensitive to the fact that in, interpreters aren't tech people. So if you say to them, I, I agree with Alex completely. If you've got someone who doesn't have the the, the facilities, then you need to go to a, a, a less risky situation or less risky person. But with interpreters, I find that the the agencies send out a, a request to them to to test their internet. And so they'll do a ping, they'll do a speed test. And that's just one moment in time that they're showing a picture of. And yet your event goes over for two, three hours, and you've got all these dips and slums and all sorts of things happening. And that's where the issues, I agree with Alex, if it didn't work once, it's probably not going to work the next time either. I thought we were going to be a bit short, but it turns out we still have a couple of little things. So let's try to uh, accommodate everyone. Let's do a next question real quick. Jack Rupel from Breckenridge, Colorado, asking, are filler words, um, uh, and the like, uh, filtered out? Uh, Robert? Uh, if you're referring to closed captions, it depends. <laughs> uh, on YouTube, no. Um, <laughs> but uh, with, with, with the better cl um, closed captions uh, systems, yes, they are. With um, sign language, they're usually filtered out. You, you won't go on and, and with break pauses like that. Alex? Yeah. Uh, we've seen some that do and some that don't. Sometimes they consider it. I think that a lot of times we've seen both captioners and interpreters make a decision about whether the speaker is using these as a tool or whether they're using them as uh, a filler. And they oftentimes make a decision about what they're going to do in that area. And sometimes it's moving a moving target while, they're, while the person's talking. And let's get to the last question. Last one in from Douglas Carmichael. Could ASL in the show and the text interface of Makana also be helpful to the speech-delayed, more severely neurodivergent population. Um, yeah. Alex, yeah, you have a thought? I, I, I think that using, like, how Makana affects uh, accessibility was an eye-opener for us on Saturday that we just really hadn't. I have, I have to admit it was a blind spot. It, it makes a lot of things easier for us. But, but the fact that it made this so much sim smoother got us thinking. You know, so now we're trying to think about how do we make that even smoother, you know? And so that's definitely become a, a thought process on us of having some of the, for us, having some of the back end and even front end tools. Um, you know, we've, we've definitely gotten feedback in the past from Hashid and, and, and Laura and other, and other for, as far as site goes. And now we're looking at this as another, as another option. So we're, it's something we're thinking about pretty hard. Excellent. Robert, this has been a fascinating hour. Thank you so much for being here. Do you have a last thing that you'd like to say before we finish up the show here? Yeah, I, I think I'd just be, be a little bit cautious on the amount of, of stuff that you're actually feeding to people who have um, um, some sort of disabilities, because if they're watching the speaker, they're watching the, the sign language interpreter, and they have to read text, from a cognitive point of view, that'll be an overload for a lot of people. It's an overload to the average person. So I think you just need to be sensitive to that. Excellent point. Thank you very much. Um, wow, what a day. I enjoyed this immensely. Uh, well, looking ahead, Friday, stage automation. So that's uh, tomorrow. Uh, Saturday, I believe, Robert, are you coming back to talk more about this issue on Saturday? I see a note about that here. 
yeah, yeah not so much about this issue, but I'll be talking about um, Zoom, WebEx, and Microsoft Teams, and simultaneous interpretation, how to set it up, what the effects are, what sort of workflows the, the individual platforms for corporate events work with. And we also have with us a, um, a professor that is um, works with interpretation from the the Manchester, sorry, from the London Municipal uh, University. And uh, Danielle will be talking a lot about interpretation, what it does, why it works, and all the ins and outs that I don't really understand. Excellent. Well, there you go. So we'll continue on these themes and know more about that. Our thanks, as always, go out to everybody involved in putting this on, to our producers, uh, for all the questions that we got. Thank you so much uh, from our panelists, everybody who was here to provide answers, and of course, the crew and back end, who without which this does not happen. Uh, today's Tlaloc uh, Traversal, we went 92,240 miles virtually. That's 148,000 kilometers, more than 730 bananas for scale if you laid them end to end. That's how far we went out on million. the planet to get these answers. Yeah, go million ahead. Million bananas for million. scale. Oh, did not, I say 792 very big bananas. Yeah, 730 so, yeah. million bananas. They, uh, yeah, that was bananas. And the size of Pennsylvania. <laughs> uh, that, that's equivalent of going 3.7 times around the earth to get the answers that we brought to you today. That is our purpose for being here. Thank you so much for being here, and we will see you in after hours afterwards. Thanks for watching and listening. I keep it's a banana soft. now. It's soft for bananas. I like peeling it. This is the standard banana. It's the it's the banana. Wait. Why don't we say bananas for scale? We have a banana that is the right measurement. Yeah. <laughs> My wife just came in and said, I perhaps I should stop being so nice to the ground crew. They did extra work for us today. <laughs> Please not beside the window between the hours of <laughs> <laughs> yeah, stop giving them donuts. Thanks, everybody. Oh and John has no internet. <laughs>